ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Can I Interject, where three Scottish kinsmen have three topics up for discussion and debate. Uh, we have got the usual topics on top ten with Dan's Crypto Corner once again, uh, with a couple of additions today, uh, but you'll find out during the episode. Uh, we'll just cover how everyone's been keeping over the last couple of weeks, Dan. How's the last two weeks been? They've been fine. Uh, nothing to nothing too exciting to report on. Been really quiet actually, but obviously all the events in the news keep life entertaining, don't they, lads? Yeah. So there's there's no escaping from uh, as we record this now. Well, are we the the first of first of November? Yesterday on yesterday on Halloween, the boogeyman came out and made his official announcement. I'm really upset. I'm really upset he didn't dress up. I know. <laughs> I thought he had. Mm. He, he came out pretending pretend to be the Prime Minister. <laughs> firing, I'm firing this morning, boys. But yeah, other than other than all the events that seem to happen around us, nothing's really happening with me at the minute. Just work and no play, and just trying to get on with things. But we, I mean, yesterday we had uh, we had a first family quiz as well, didn't we? For couple of months, which was nice. Nice little Halloween get-together, but other than that, nothing else to report. Yeah, I think that's uh, back to... I'm getting the back to the lockdown again. I got text last night about when's the first Zoom quiz, another chats, and then it's just another snowball <laughs> into into more lockdown quizzes. But we'll yeah. see what happens. Okay, so I don't know if you saw there was... Um, have I got news for you? Put a thing out yesterday saying uh, to the effect of as as the cry went out from the Prime Minister, a sleepy Joe Wicks emerged from hibernation and got ready to do more PE videos <laughs> online. There is a sleepy Joe. <laughs> yep. Gregor, what are you doing after? Um, fairly disheartened that Dan didn't mention the games name last Saturday, I'll be, I'll be honest. Oh! Uh, I would mention in the last one. Yeah, pre- uh, but yeah, good time had by all. I suppose not going to go into too much detail because we'll talk about it during one of the segments. But yeah, clocks went back. We're up till what three in the morning, despite that. So four o'clock real time or old time. So it's a good effort, Dan. You think checked out a bit before that? Did you? Did you play Terraform Mars? Yeah, I played yeah, Terraform Mars. Dan was there to the end. Yeah, it was Lorraine. Sorry, I wasn't. I, I think it was other people who were checking out because there was some serious conversation going on. <laughs> people have checked out and left. Yeah. <laughs> And if nothing else over the last week, we've learned that why we keep this uh, the topics off <laughs> off current events. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, despite that, we've got one one this week. But yeah, uh, generally pretty quiet week. I've started to get yeah the same with you guys. You're getting more. It kind of stepped down a bit the online sort of social engagement, but it's definitely ramping up again. I'd say it's now busier than what it was during the first lockdown. It, even though most of them are like in Scotland, but as you know, movement's fairly restricted anyway. But yeah, I've got a Monday night games night. I've now got a Friday night games night. I've got somebody else asking me to play Dead by Daylight. Dead by Daylight, I think it is. Have you heard of that? No, I don't. 4v1 no. horror game, I think it is. Go and check that out. Yeah, so I can see that ramping up again over the next few weeks, which is good because I'm just fairly quiet just now. Otherwise, you need to load the Steam up. Load the Steam up with plenty of games. Yeah, it's good because they're all pretty cheap. Like these sort of social interaction, sort of board game style games. What about you, Neil? What are you up to? 
Um, quite a week for me. Still having a bit of time off. I'm going back to work this week. So I've been ramping up my development on my trading bots. And I won't have quite enough time to play with them in the future. So that's going pretty well. Uh, yeah, that's mainly doing it. The games night, enjoyed that. We've got, uh, we've been, we've got through quite a few games. Yeah, we did, yeah. And we'll see, we'll talk to, yeah. we'll talk to them on those later. Got quite, just preparing for work, preparing for, I guess that's it. <laughs> Being very, very quiet. Right. Recovering from injury. So, very interesting week for the three of us, uh, two weeks. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> one week. One, yeah, one week. Yeah, it's only been a week since we got up. Uh, so, We'll jump straight into it with Gregor's topic this week, fire theory. Uh, you call it a theory or you call it a practice? I'll let you movement. go into Gregor. Movement, okay. So this is my first attempt at one of these pre-written notes. We talked about one of the fact checks a couple of episodes back. So I managed six lines, so bear with me while I troll through this. But yeah, the fire movement. Uh, fire is an acronym. It stands for Financial Independence Retire Early. It's a sort of financial... Practice, I suppose you could call it. It began, I mean, it's existed for as long as people have made money, really. Um, but the movement itself probably took root in the 1990s with the book, 1992 book, Your Money or Your Life by Vicky Robin. Uh, that was followed by other sort of seminal books in, in the, that people refer to in the movement. Rich Dad Poor Dad in 1987 by, I don't know why I did this to myself, but Robert Kiyosaki and Sharon Lechter. And it's really uh, taken hold throughout the 2000s, particularly sort of post-2010, uh, mainly by, say, millennials, so those born between, I don't know, this will be picked up in the fact check, but around 1980 to 1995. 1985 to 2000, I believe. 1985 to 1995. Is it? Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure there's probably no different true definition, but yeah, those come around about the year 2000, in the, in the early 2000s, should we say. In sort of summary, the principle is you you save more money than you earn. Simple at its core. Uh, but then the more money you do save as a proportion of your salary then dictates how quickly that you're able to no longer, that you no longer need to rely on that salary. So say if you've got, say if you put away half of your paycheck, half your take-home paycheck every month, then you have saved up one year of retirement. And so if you Continue that logic. Once you've saved up enough money to do you for the rest of your life, then you don't need to work anymore. I mean, it's a standard sort of retirement model, except these people are looking at putting away more money earlier, allowing that money to then grow through investments, and they'll be able to retire in some cases in their 30s or 40s, uh, in some cases even earlier. So the, the higher percentage of your pay that you save, the quicker you're able to, to stop working and pursue the things you you really want to pursue in your life. So like I say, this this, this is you know, sort of concept that's been going on for a long time. Um, I was first sort of made aware of it through a person in my work, uh, last last job, who recommended the site Monovator to me. It's a British-based sort of financial blogger. Uh, we'll caveat this as well at this stage and probably at later stages, this is not financial advice in any shape or form. It's just a description of the financial movement that is fire. But, yeah, Moneyvere sort of lays out the, or laid out to me the steps in which 
uh, this could be achieved um, looking at typically you invest in sort of low cost index trackers which matches the whole market return rather than individual stock and that way you've got a diversification across a whole range of different sectors it's also typically you're also typically put money away for extended periods of time uh, i.e. the rest of your life and I mean there's a general rule um, that's floated about that is if you can save 25 times your expected expenses then you won't need to be you won't need to you can rely on that capital sum for your income for the rest of your life because typically your investments will grow and if you withdraw four percent of that which is a 25th and uh, you'll be able to to sort of sustain yourself there is of course uh, risk if there's a stock market crash or if your investments don't return as much as you expect to uh, but i suppose the main point is it's called financial independence retire early but retire early is probably a misnomer for a lot of people in the in the game and it's really just about not being tied into a specific line of work or your main career and doing what you want to do uh, and it could be for minimal wage that you can survive on otherwise had you not pursued this financial course uh, so i think that's enough an intro we'll get into a bit more the details but just want to get your thoughts first of all um we'll start with the person who has read the articles and <laughs> has a has a interest in these sort of financial concepts anyway um, yeah I've, I've seen very similar things online i think one of the main ones is if you can average the stock market or well, the S&P, the eight percent a year roughly uh within just over 50 years if you save a hundred pound a month you'll be a millionaire Basically, I've heard that concept before, which is basically the yeah. same thing. But in this, you're saving half your paycheck. But uh, that book title actually really liked because it explains it well. Your money all your life to for yeah for most people to save half the paycheck for that period of time. It's you you uh, there's a lot of stuff. That I know you, you save. Oh, if you don't buy a cost of coffee every day, you'll buy you'll save this amount. So it's definitely involves a lot of restrictions for saving in the first place. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I agree with that because this kind of leads on to the sort of individuals, uh, big names in the in the area. But Mister Money Mustache is a popular blog in this field, and he is all about the ability to separate what actually makes you happy and what you're spending your money on. And his argument is it's a persuasive argument. If you're if you're pursuing happiness, then you're not buying cost of cost cost of coffees every day, and you're not spending five hundred quid on a car every month. However, an aficionado you are of cars to spend on an average salary, spend three to five hundred pound on a car monthly payments is sacrificing a lot of other things that could genuinely increase your happiness. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. Yeah, because I mean he he shows the. The, bit, the happiness that you gain from any single purchase is at its peak at the very start of it and it very quickly fades away. I'm, I'm fairly okay with money, but the weekends kind of gets, runs away from itself. Going out for dinner, going not so much going out for the pub for drinks, always expensive occasions. And I think you have to cut those out or considerably draw back in them to make a meaningful difference. Especially to save half, 50%. You have to be Above average salary to be saving more than fifty percent of your and it depends on mortgage as well. Yeah, that that's a valid criticism. It does it does require a healthy take home salary 
to to achieve this. But there's no, I don't think there's much of a limit in terms of the bottom end on if you're earning the minimum wage in the country. It depends on where where you're where you're staying, and, and that might not be enough to get you by. So it's not that's this isn't a financial practice for somebody in that position. But it's really just highlighting if you have the means to put money away, and if you have the ability to cut back on non-essential purchases, then this is what. Yeah, it's very doing. good. It is very good. The if it, if it can be done. Yeah. But yeah, Dan, what's your thoughts on this? Yeah, it's good if it can be done. I think that's you know it's it, it's a great idea, like any good idea. It makes sense financially if you can afford to live on less of your income and therefore reinvest your income for the prospect of retirement in the future. That, I mean, that's any anyone's anyone would like to retire earlier. It seems these days people want to be retiring earlier and earlier, but we seem to get dragged into having to work later and later in life. In my profession, I've I've not got the prospect of retiring before. 68 so unless i can get myself into another job that sort of relates to that profession then you know it's sort of it's it, that becomes it becomes a harder prospect because because people are working later uh, by average i would imagine then the physical strains are being placed on people who are working older you know are have a negative impact on their their living standards, you know, their personal living standards. So yeah, if you can afford to put the money away, that's great. But I think there are a lot of factors which sort of hinder that. And I would have said, I would have said, the prospect of achieving that, like you're saying, has a correlation to to income. So the higher the higher the the higher the earnings, the the greater the prospect of being able to indulge in that type of of saving and investment. However, depending on what your lifestyle is like, it would require a greater and greater. So, for example, in my case, having two children, I would need to, we would need to be earning a lot more to compensate for the fact that we have two children to support as well. So it all becomes relative. You know, things, savings, saving is always easier when you don't have dependents, whether it be human or animal. Yep. You know, it's the, this whole expenditure, isn't it? It's all about balancing it out. But like you're saying, it's also about you know, happy, the principles of happiness as well and being content with your with yourself and being happy with the situation that you're in. And sometimes you have to make sacrifices to enable that to happen and have to be prepared to have less money even to invest. Yeah, I think, I like to say that as a valid criticism, but at the same time, a lot of people can make changes that they may not think they can make. And I think that's where this uh, this movement really comes into it in the sense that in the majority of cases, if you're if you're working, I mean this is based on America as well, so understand the taxes are a bit lower and generally the wages are a bit higher. Uh, but there's there's opportunity for you to cut back on on luxuries, and it's just about rethinking what that luxury is bringing to your life. Is it making you happy? And I mean, it's a it's a simple concept, but by no means easy. But it's just reflected on the purchase yard, consumer purchases you are making, and saying, "Is there something better I can be doing with this money? And is there something I can do that doesn't require spending money?" Because a lot of the time, I mean, 
the, the best things you do are free. Best things in life are free. Uh, best things in life are free, yeah. <laughs> I think the this year probably brought it to light because people, I mean, the classics are, I'm guilty of it, going to petrol stations, buying a coffee. If you're going, if you're working in an office in a city, you'll go for lunch, you'll go prep for lunch, or you'll go buy a sandwich and buy a meal deal, and you're spending a five or a day just in a coffee and a meal deal, which almost everybody's most every everybody's guilty of at some point. That, that's exactly the sort of behaviours I'm talking about. It's like if you're if you're working and you're spending three five pound a day on lunch, that is not a necessity, and for very little effort, you can almost eliminate that cost entirely by taking in your own lunch for example i mean people people say that's not possible in certain roles and things but it, to me in the vast majority of cases it's just nonsense like for uh, how much does it take to put together a lunch and how many times how, many, how much time a day do you spend doing something that's not productive and that's saving you five pound a day. Yeah. Similar with the coffee, just if you don't buy the again, it's, it's a simple concept. But it's not easy, but if you just don't buy the coffee, it's just about that reflection in terms of what's making you happy. How can you make these savings, and what it can lead to further down the line? And that is not being tied to a job. If you're in a job you love and you're getting paid well for it, then fair enough. And if you enjoy every aspect of your job, but I've still got the numbers here. But I, I imagine in terms of if you sat something down and said what's your ideal job start to finish very few people would describe to them describe to you their current job there may be different aspects of it they'd really enjoy but in terms of their own freedom to pursue what they want to do as well this is just 100% down to the economic theory or the economic practice of time preference yeah it is so uh, this is very low time preference. Make make sacrifices now for the benefit in the future. So and people, am I? I've personally got a higher time. I feel like a medium time preference. I don't have the long, longer view. Maybe because I'm still seeing as young and I want to take risks. And um, but it's yeah, it's it's all all a practice. All you need to you need to make conscious sacrifices now for a long term benefit. And yeah, it depends. People, personalities are different with it. Yeah, I mean, they're only conscious sacrifices because they've been drilled into us. That's what we do. If you know what I mean. I mean, it's yeah. a kind of different topic in consumerism, but they don't need to be conscious sacrifices if you unconsciously don't need to sacrifice. You know what I mean? If you're not buying coffees yeah. every day, then you don't need to sacrifice it because it's not a loss, and it quickly becomes not a loss as soon as you stop doing these things. As soon as you get kick the habit then it's yeah it involves because in my in my theory is in my, in my head it would work I've not spent a coffee I'm like oh that money's in my account I'll just spend it on something else yeah that's the, a, a bad way of looking at it but that's also drilled in my head so that, that's for spending yeah I mean simple steps yeah. include like putting money away at the start of the month so it's not on your account obviously only put away what you could afford uh, and that involves kind of detailing your expenses and what your actual outgoings are and what your necessities necessary goals are and what you can afford to put away but yeah Dan, yeah. Dan any more thoughts on this I, I always find that my problem when it comes to discussing money whether it be you know, any type of financial investment you know just the, the whole nature of money it's such a I see it in a very almost philosophical abstract way of thinking about it because you know it goes back to you know when I've spoken to the kids about money and I say 
you know, the money you've got in your account is purely hypothetical. You know, it exists it exists there by the grace of trust that we have in the financial system that we have. And I always think everything everything that we have with regards to money is all hypothetical. You know, not just money we use now, but the whole the whole system and the whole bartering system, you know, going back to before money when it was you know, I'll give you two sheep for one of your goats kind of thing. You know, there's the principle and the value of the product. And it's the same it's the same as this, it's that you know, that's the, the the moral nature of investing and saving and the principle of you know ensuring a a nest egg for yourself in in the future the prospect of retiring early is all about how you perceive the value of what you have in proportion to what you don't so it's the sacrifices that you make but it's also about how you use that money in the future as well could influence because you could say you could save your money now you know, you save five pounds a day on a on a meal deal and a coffee, but then you're guaranteed that when you get to retirement age, you'll be going out for coffee. So it's almost like you're just investing for the future. This is my coffee. I'm going to buy in thirty, forty years time. But yeah, but are you going to buy coffees if you've spent the last thirty years not buying coffees? What's the point if you've if you've realised that that's not bringing you happiness? If happiness is having a coffee every day, then you'd have a coffee every day. What if that brings you the happiness, though? Then you should make sure that. So this this only this 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 system only applies if your you see that your future prospect of happiness to be greater than your immediate happiness. I know. In the example of the coffee, if someone sits down and is really honest with himself and says, "What is it I enjoy about this coffee?" and if it is the simple act of drinking that coffee every day. And that to them is worth five pounds. The fire movement's not about taking that away from them, because that's something they genuinely want to spend the money on. But it's about breaking down. Why do I want to go to Starbucks every day? So I can go into the office with a Starbucks cup every day and show everybody I've been to the, to the coffee shop. Is it because it makes you feel good going in with all the other business people in the, the Starbucks at that time in the morning? What what is just break it down? So what am I getting out of this? Yeah. I mean, if, if I was in the situation where I was working with somebody and I knew that they were coming in and they were going, I have, I'm, I've bought a Starbucks. I've not bought a Starbucks for any other reason than the fact that I can come in and say, look where I've been. That person's no, I know. clearly a prat. People don't, people don't do it consciously, though. That, but if if you really break it down, that might be some one of the drivers for them. And that's, that, I mean, I'm not single people who go to Starbucks. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just talking about... <laughs> I've just talked about reflecting on every action you take and what is your particular motivation for spending the money on that pursuit. I've I've been guilty of splashing yeah. too much, and I've now over the next over the last couple of years, I've kind of I've realised the errors. Things like buying designer clothes is you, the way you put it perfectly. What am I getting out of this that I'm not getting out of something I can buy on Groupon? Uh, that's a, that's a major one. Yeah. Because that, that's fashion, designer fashion is astronomical. astronomical. Sometimes it's worth it, but not not some of the prices you, people are paying. Yeah, if you're, if you're buying a Barber jacket that's going to last, last you until the day you die, then if you're spending 300 quid, then that might be better than spending 30 quid a year on a cheaper jacket. For yeah, but a £400 pair of swimming shorts or a £300 t-shirt. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. You, in, in other cases, you're not paying for quality, you're just paying for yeah. the name. But I think I've always been like that, though, because I've never been in a situation where I've considered 
any value in buying that type of product anyway. Like if I go to a supermarket, I'm not fussed about the brand of the of the food, or if I go shopping, I'm not fussed about the brand of the item of clothing or something like that. I'm fussed about what I'm actually getting. I would agree with you, and I'm, I'm the same. However, and this is more of a, uh, a sort of advertising and brand names sort of argument, but having a brand name on it can make the product more appealing by the simple fact it's got a brand name on it for food. Through no, through no other reason. Have you ever seen Eat Well for Less? Yeah. <laughs> Case in point. In blind t- taste tests, and that that's what... I mean, that's the whole point of advertising, because it does work. And as much as I think is I'm a savvy consumer and it doesn't affect me, I'm absolutely certain it does affect me in various ways. Even those that I'm not aware of, because advertising has become so intelligent. There's just no... It's just to, to yeah. the extent that a shop's bleed out they've got you. It's so so skewed in the sort of product's favour. It's unbelievable. And it's even more true in nature than in it. I uh, see. You're getting a hang of this idea of critical theory now because that, that's exactly what that is. You know, it's the it's all about the illusion, isn't it? It's about seeing through the, through the curtain of the illusion yeah. that is the value of a product. And, it, you know, it's the same as what I'm saying about money. You know, the value of, of something is purely based on the perception. Yeah. So you know when you know when a when a when a note when a you know from from a the Bank of Scotland is signed by the governor of the Bank of Scotland and it says the value of this is five pounds ten pounds whatever mm-hmm. then it's that type of faith like if somebody like if this person was to, someone was to turn around and say I don't actually believe a thing that person says then the value of of anything falls apart yeah I know but the the same point society would then fall apart if you. The national currency exactly that had no meaning then societally. Yeah. You're talking about sort of apop- apocalyptic scenarios here. Well, it's not apocalyptic scenarios. Just it's just it's just faith. Yeah, yeah. That's what it is. Yeah, you do have a you do need to have a faith in it. And but this isn't necessarily part of the fire, But a lot of proponents will have this about this. But it's about sort of tooling yourself to be better equipped to deal with life in the way that the yeah. modern person has not been equipped to deal with it, in the sense of yeah. get taking up hobbies that aren't sort of vacuous and actually mean something and can let your sort of creative mind wander. Yeah. But it, but it, is, it, is, but it is that classic. It is borderline, though, because, you know, did you look at our coupon at the weekend? Yeah. Well, you know, we get let's not do that anymore because that's a total waste of time and you know it, you know, it's the value what joy is it bringing the only joy it brings is the fact that at the end of it we had to slag each other off for how badly we picked teams. you know it's it, I know I, t- I totally understand about the nature of the value of you know because I, I we all think that sometimes we go should I go do that should I buy that do I actually need that and the the human you know the, the the need to have yeah. something. Sometimes the pull is greater than the, the the rational process that goes behind saying no. It's like sometimes it takes the brain spends so much time thinking about it. It goes, "Oh, stuff! This is too much hard. This is too much like hard work. I'll just get it." Yeah. And then afterwards, you can regret it. That's absolutely fine. Mm-hmm. I also think it's very much of a risk in investment as well as all investment has risk. Yeah, to yeah. save over that period of time. There's definitely going to be, if you're saving over a 30, 40 year period, there's definitely going to be 
large dips. I mean, you're saying what, what would you invest in a world tracker? Because yeah. I know the footsies, the footsie was in 1999 higher than it was now. Yeah. So it has yeah. to be. It would have to, yeah smartly spread over all indexes. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, world very, tracker. there's various sort of investing strategies. Um, that I'd like, yeah. I like the world equity tracker, and that's shown to have. If you take out that, that did that takes out a lot of the specific risk of different countries, um, and inflations, government practices, any shocks that occur to single countries, so on, and you've also got the longevity risk it takes that out as well because you're doing it for such a long period of time, so that's a lot lower yeah. than it would have been. And other people include sort of gold, which is negatively correlated with uh, investments and bonds as well. To, to diversify yeah. even further, but yeah, I mean, there's there's lots of different arguments on the sort of investments you can choose, and there is a risk there. Um, however much mitigated you can, however mitigated you can make it, there will be a risk. And yeah. I would have said as well that the general, the, the desire in life is that you know, as 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 you get older. You, in theory, earn more because the value yep. of your input should represent the value that you're that you're getting in return. You know, your experience, or if you're promoted, or if you get new, you know, moving up, moving up the ladder, as they say, up the greasy pole. And it, but that's not always the case. And you know, for some people, it's just not practical that the prospect of doing it because they're not looking at a life of. I don't want to call it exponential, but you know, a, a correlation of of income growth in relation to job prospect and job opportunity. Yeah, and I think the the easiest thing to do, if, especially if you are if you are spending more than you earn, is having that in mind when you're making financial decisions. Because a lot of people will, upon getting promotion, upon moving to the next career level, upgrade their car. Or buy a bigger house, yeah, yeah, or immediately yeah. match their expenditure to their new income, rather than taking a second yeah. and say, "Right, am I happy with where I am just now? What benefit is the, is having an extra bedroom going to give me, or having yeah. it five minutes closer to uh, talk, or sometimes an hour away from work, rather than five minutes closer to, if you know what I mean?" So, yeah. no, absolutely. And it also depends as well if, if if you what you're doing is a traditional profession or a um, like like a trade kind of profession, you know. And if it's a trade, whether it's you know whether you're a joiner, a mechanic, an electrical engineer, or whatever, a software engineer, anything like that, it it's also depends on where you are, mm-hmm. because what you'll get paid in Scotland. Is definitely not as high as what you could potentially get paid down south. Isn't that right, Neil? Yeah, I'm but certainly so. right, Dan. <laughs> it also comes down to cost of living as well, though, because yeah, and it comes down to you. I mean, yeah, you need to tailor. Again, this is uh, these are all arguments I sort of posited by various contributors, but it's all about tailoring your mm-hmm. lifestyle to your occupation as well. And minimizing yeah. the the cost there, because you could yeah. be you yeah. could, could be spending an hour each way on the train or the bus or the car to your work, and that's costing you money every day. Whereas just the price, the property prices right next to your work are putting you off, but net 
the amount of time and money you'll be saving is actually better if you stay next to work, but it's just that high sort of pr- property rental price yeah. for sure. Yeah, it, 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 yeah, it's about, it's about working out the that balance of the books with it, isn't it? It's, yeah. It's not even about balancing the books. It's about making sure that you're sufficiently in the black. Yeah, spend, spend less you know, than you earn is the main tenet, yeah. I suppose. Yeah, so, and like you say, you could be, take something out at the start of the month. You could take something out at the end of the month when you get the new pay and you go, oh, I, have a, I had a surplus of X amount. I could put that away. Yeah, that that, but like Neil says, if you spend if you save five pound on a coffee, you're looking for other ways to spend it. That's very true, but that's 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 part of human nature, I think, as well. Is yeah, we get very we get very excited when we have a surplus of anything. Yeah, but that's yeah. what I mean. Act like you don't have a surplus. So when you get a pair as yeah. work, just keep your everything exactly the same and just put whatever that increases direct debit and into a savings account. Of your choice, yeah, but yeah, but I you know, I live with somebody who, who who can smell money, you can sense it when something happens and it doesn't last long. That son of yours is, yeah, <laughs> I know, <laughs> yeah, of course it must be him. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm I'm all for it. My jobs are, as you know, I'm self-employed, so there's times in my life where I'm going to go up and going to go down and pay, and I'm going to there'll be times in my life I'm going to have to live off my investment, so I'm I'm got things in place that are not long term, shorter term for example the four egg pots I've got punts. six of it. Huh? Punts. But yeah, well yeah, most of it's options in four egg pots, but ninety uh, percent of it. Again, this is just to our listeners, this is not investment advice in any shape but, or form. But no. this but these bots are this is they're gonna be the whole idea is to build it up very slowly. So I'm looking at the long model of now I'm looking at about Five percent a month, not ten four percent a year. And there's times that I'm going to be able to, and because I'm very well aware, there's times I'm going to have to lay off investments. Just the nature of the world at the moment and the lack of job security. But yeah, I mean, as well as that, you can also have a cash buffer put away in relatively low risk investments. So there's you're almost guaranteed, or as guaranteed as you can be, that you'll have that money there. Yeah, that's like the currency trading robots. They're all. Fairly safe. Right. A fairly safe investment you can get 10% a month off. Yeah. You heard it here first, listeners. <laughs> <laughs> spend a lot of time on these things. Yeah. yeah, a lot of people spend a lot more time on things that don't work. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's, that's just, it's, it's a safe... You might lose 5% a month, but you're not going to lose more than that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Losing 5% a month quickly adds up. <laughs> it does indeed, yeah. <laughs> Telling me. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting topic. It's, it's just back to the basic concept of save what you can afford. And tr- and more, it's more of a millennial thing now because the generation before has ruined the world uh, with property prices and in comparison to paycheck, as you've seen the graph. But the saving money is a huge thing now. They call, they call, they call, the coffee and the sandwich is a classic. Yeah, absolutely. And, I, yeah, I, I think this from the uh, again, this is anecdotal, but the, from the media that I read, it's almost like millennials, millennials are being uh, sort of not dictated to, but like educated, not educated, but you know what I mean, like talked down to in this this manner because I've seen a lot of somebody made a comment about 
have to spend less money on avocado on toast, for instance. <laughs> I can't remember who made the comment. Let me fact check that. But there was a lot. I'm guilty. Of, there's a there's I'm, guilty. There's I'm guilty of an avocado on toast now and again. Yeah, there's a, there's a, a piece written on that, and that re- received a lot of coverage. And this is exactly yeah, this is the coffee sort of situation um, update for millennials. But yeah, I think they're because the evidence shows that millennials tend to be more sort of seeking of experiences rather than products or items. Yeah. The retire early thing's really beginning to take off. The what? Um, the, the retiring early seems oh, yeah. to really be taking off. I mean, I mean now my SIP's 55, and a lot of pensions are 55. It, will be, money it will be 58. Will it? Yeah. The, pit, and the government decides it's going to be 57. It'll be tied 10 years below the retirement age as of sometime in the 2020s. Yeah. And the LISA's 60, I believe. I think so. I didn't look too much in the LISA because when I mean, you've got a SIP, you've got ISAs. I think they do the job. Yeah. Again, yeah. this is not investment advice. Well, the LISA is you get, 20, you get 25% on top. Yeah, you get that on your... Sherry and the cake. You get that on your pension anyway, though. Yeah. Yeah. I think as well if 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 we look at the history of you know what was considered luxury, you know if you're talking about surplus you all think of luxury I think as well. And if you go way back to 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 medieval times and you know a luxury for some people was being able to have meat with their food. And then you skip forward generations and it was to own their own property mm-hmm. and have their own land. And then you moved on to ha- being able to, you know, pop, you know, if you're in the Victorian period and the Edwardian period, being able to afford to have paid help in the house to mm-hmm. support your, and obviously that went out of fashion. And then it became more about objects. So if you could afford a car, if you could afford, yep. Um, now it's then it went into sort of if you go into sort of the eighties, you've got your phones. Everyone could own a phone. Could you afford a computer? Move forward, can you afford an iPhone? Can you afford Sky? Can you afford blah blah blah? And it was always about that, you know, what we measured ourselves on what we had and what we could afford to have. But now we're moving towards that we can afford to not have, and that is to not have a job. Yeah. Can we afford to be self sufficient and to no longer be tied down? And, you know, the, 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 the movement appears to be that. We are no longer going to be saying, look at what I have. We're going to be saying, look at what I don't have to do anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because, I mean, um, disposable income has been the highest it's ever been. I mean, it's just an upper trend, isn't it? It's, I mean, I think it's yeah. at or slightly below pre-global financial crisis levels. But, I mean, yeah. there's, there's no doubt, barring the pandemic, that generally the Western world is better off than it has ever been in terms of individuals. Globally, yeah, globally. Sorry, yeah, yeah. Good point. Globally, yeah, we've never. I mean, you, there, there is still, there is still massive disparity, yeah. disproportion, dis, yeah, disparity of wealth yeah. around the world. But proportionally speaking, there has never been so many people out of absolute poverty. Yeah. For the for the fact that the global population keeps increasing at an exponential rate at the minute as well. Um, I um, might fact know. check that one. For the fact for the fact that the global population keeps increasing at a rapid rate, I'll fact check that as well. For the fact that the global population <laughs> it is increasing at a rapid rate is increasing. I'll give you that at a rapid rate. I not, not well, as rapid not as rapid as the COVID cases in the US, but it's going pretty quickly. Population's doubled in the last thirty years, isn't it? 
I will send you uh, Hans Rosling. You heard of him? Yeah, I think I had a, I think I had a pint with him before lockdown. You've never. Uh, that's a good because if you look at if you guys ever seen uh, I'll be back for di- or back in time for dinner. Yes, Dan, you seen it on BBC when they follow. Uh, I, I, I'm sure they're on catch up. I highly recommend you check them out. Is they follow a family over, I think it's six weeks generally, and they start with the period. Um, it's either a ten or twenty year period. Oh, about twenty year period. So it'll be probably nineteen hundred to nineteen twenty. And that family will live in a house for that week that gradually goes through that those couple of decades. And they'll do the okay. they'll I mean they won't they will work in, won't be working fourteen hour days in the in the mills, but they'll visit a mill and they will be out of the, the house. They'll have to cook what somebody of their sort of esteem and stature would have cooked back in the day. And yeah. then they'll gradually go through. And I, as they go through and as when they look back, reflecting, so off topic. No, 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 no. <laughs> because you show they show the booms in sort of disposable income and what people then start spending their money on it, and they get these luxuries in their house. Okay, and it's always yeah. at the end. Like yeah, it's always at, it's always at some point during the start. They're like, "This is this is good not having the TV to see, or it's it's really good having this this time." And I think that yeah. sums up. I mean, of course, it's horrible working. 14 hour days when you were 16 years old. In the mills when you're 10 years old. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there was plenty <laughs> aspects of life that were terrible that we weren't experiencing. But in terms of the things that they can now still experience, I think yeah. it's, a, it's a strong message. Uh, but yeah, I think I think we've covered that topic rather, I wouldn't say fully, but rather well, rather um, robustly. It's a, it, yeah, it's a bit of a spider web because it drags you all off. All over the place. Anything financial does yeah, that anyway, I think. I mean, it's, it's, it's massive in terms of scope because, it, I mean, the main tenants are tenants are uh, spend more than you earn. I mean, that's pretty much every financial aspect of your life right there. And then you've got pursue, pursue things that make you happy rather than uh, consider Again, I mean, yeah. that's a whole philosophical question. And it's a bit about looking, looking after your community as well and the world around you, um, which again, I've talked about for days. So yeah, I mean, broad reaching subject, but uh, very individual as well, but yeah, yeah. Recommend just check it out. Thanks, Gregor. And another rabbit hole of investment strategy can come out of that as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thanks very much for that, Gregor. Well covered on the fire theory. Yep. Fire. Well covered on the fire movement. Anytime. We didn't start the fire. <laughs> uh, so our board game this week is going to be not a board game. It is a recent game called Among Us. Has gained a lot of traction this year. I, may, I believe it was brought out in mid two thousand eighteen, and it's. I think it's been popularized by Twitch. The person that's been named that I've got a source here is Soda Poppin, who popularized it. And my friends this year were watch have been watching a lot of Among Us on Twitch and played it for the first time. It was only in October actually. And funnily enough, that's when all the memes started to come out, so it's definitely gained a lot of traction. It's basically... Who was that? Sorry, who was that again? Soda Poppin. That popular Financial Times Bloomberg <laughs> special correspondent. <laughs> no, it's Twitch. Twitch streamer. Twitch streamer. I know. I know that's an extraordinary name. It's like watching news right <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if you read about Among Us. <laughs> the Guardian may have posted a piece. Uh, this is Wikipedia. No, no, I don't know what Dan's expecting, so the FTA. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> I 
I'll set a page spread on others. I'll save my I'll save my expect I'll save my expectations for when you ask me. But yeah, I believe uh, PewDiePie has also streamed it as well. I'm not streamed it, but played it on YouTube and probably had put streamed it on Twitch. Uh, yeah, so very popular game. It's the setup is I believe there's is there a limit to the number of players? Yeah, probably not. There will be sixty-four. Uh, I think it's a lot. I think it's twelve, isn't it? Yeah, so it's I can, I can actually find the four, four or ten players. On, okay, on Android so version, players. Android version at least. Yeah, and the Steam as well. So four to ten players. Okay, four to ten oh, players. Unlimited, very fast though. And you're all put in the room. Everyone, the idea is you're all put in the room. No one knows. There's always at least one imposter. So there's usually one or two imposters, and the person who's the imposter has to go around killing the non-imposters without being caught. And when they are caught. They are excluded from the game, so it goes in rounds. This is quite hard to explain, actually. Uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe, st- maybe start explaining by what the aim of the game is for everyone else apart from the imposter. Yeah. So there's there's two there's two groups in the in the game. You're either a crewmate or an imposter. A crewmate is someone who's trying to complete missions. You know, there's little tasks out. You've got a map. You can roam around and complete little. Very short, um, let's see, little quizzes that you have to complete, and then there is the imposter who goes around, and their mission is to kill the crewmates without being detected. So the idea is, the crewmate will the imposter will go around kill a crewmate, and if that body's found by another crewmate, it will be flagged up, and people will have to discuss between them. This can be on chat, or it can be over webcam. Who do you think the imposter is? And it's that point where everyone can make their case of why they're not the imposter. So the aim of the game is the imposter. Either the imposter goes to the end killing everybody, that's how they win, or the crewmate ejecting the imposter. Uh, I think that's a fairly good sum up of it. And yeah, I really enjoy it. I mean, it's only a few minutes, usually, the game, so everyone really gets a chance. Although I think we had a hell of a lot of rounds and I was only imposter once last time which I'm quite upset about because I enjoy it but it's, it's a fun game quick and you can have many rounds and it's also quite funny because people are trying to make their case to each other and it's yeah what's your what's your thoughts on this one Dan this is the first time you've ever played it in comparison it's slightly different from the norm yeah that, that, that's, that's one way to put it um, I mean my introduction to the game came from the vast quantity of memes that I've seen splattered about the place with those strange little colourful chaps um, and the, per- the perpetual use of the term sus, which I had no idea what was going on when I first saw them and I kept seeing them so I thought I'd actually look this up because I have no idea where this current fad has come from. So my, my introduction to it wasn't was probably more through confusion and frustration rather than any, any playing of the game, but no, we we played it the last weekend for the last games night. We had uh, I was I was the the whatever you call the saboteur, the imposter, imposter. Thank you, the imposter twice. Once I got caught, once I got away with it, and I was also survived and helped to identify the imposter twice. So, if I'm honest, by that point, I was bored of it. Because I'd done, I'd, I'd achieved both, I'd achieved both things. So it was like, well, I've done that now. That's it Next. done. 
for me. Yeah, basically, it was. I didn't. It was entertaining to play, but looking back at it, it just seemed a little bit strange. Not the world's biggest fan. Quite. I don't want to say it's complicated, but for example, you know, if if somebody calls a meeting and you're being interrogated about where where you were, it was consistent that people had no idea where they were on the map, and it was it became increasingly hard to actually defend defend oneself. If you're going, I was in this part of the place, but I don't know what it's called, but it had this in it. You got to rely upon description and observation of the locations rather than necessarily uh, where the exact locations were. But yeah, it was it was all right. I can see why all the kids play it. You know, this is probably the the first first game we played where I'd probably say this is maybe more of a younger person's game. No, I don't. I don't think it. I don't think it holds up. Yeah, and then El- then it turns out that Ellie was playing it, and she was totally amazed that we were playing it because clearly we're too old to be playing this type of game. So you know, it all it all seems to fall apart. I thought, oh, great, thanks. Yeah, it's simple to understand, um, but there's a lot to it as well. Once you're experienced at it, such as navigating the map, the lights, the CCTV, it's, there's a lot to it. Well, to it's like it. Cluedo in space. Yeah, Gregor, Gregor, what's your thoughts? I think you've played it before, haven't you? I, I, I was the first thing I played it was last week as well, because right. I've not got my finger on the meme pulse as much as you two, and I think, because <laughs> I'd heard about it from a friend who's chatted about it been a month or two ago now. Um, seemed to look good, and I checked it out. Watched a few people on Twitch playing it, and the, it's funny that this is usually the board game segment because the first one of my first thoughts about this was this takes a lot from a lot of popular board games in recent years, and it makes more sense to came out yeah. in 2018 because it's got that sort of. I mean, I think some of the games we played. I don't know if we played Werewolf, but we played Resistance. I think Spyfall. That sort of social deduction element where you've got one person that really has to lie to survive and it's the same thing here um, you need to be creative with your conversation um, when, you, when you get into the main yeah. and it is a, a, same with Sheriff and Dottings another one I think we've all played that now with the cards sort of bluffing game it's, it's the same sort of feel so I can see why not that it's born out of video uh, board games those types of board games but it certainly shares a lot of similarities and I actually read a lot. I actually read an article on this. Um, they had it for different reasons, though. Um, it was on PC Gamer. It said Among Us works because it's a board game in disguise. And their theory was that a lot of people house rule board games, which I don't think we do at all, What's basically. house rule board games? Like, you put money on free park in the Monopoly, or um, if you land on Go, you get £400 rather than £200. Oh, right. Rule bending. Yeah, yeah, things that you've always played. Uh, to make the game, you think, make the game better. Uh, but there's nothing we've ever done, I don't think. So, no, I've never heard of that before. I know the free parking thing, but I don't, yeah, that's, I've never heard of the Ford. Well, something, something that's not an official rule in a game that you implement because it makes something easier. Is the free parking not a rule? Or fairer. That just, that's not a rule, no. So there's no money in free no. parking, it's just free space. Yeah, I'll start playing that that way. So I mean, that's that was their point because in Among Us, it's really down to the users because there's no. If you look at the game, the, the, the interface itself, it's just the different people going around doing tasks. It depends entirely on people agreeing to be silent 
when they're killed and so on for it to work. Yeah. Most people are most people are well in my experience the three times I've played it has been very um been adhered to, maybe less so in the last yeah, one. Yeah, but no, 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 that's your point. It's like because because they're not it's not it's not enforced by the interface. Yeah. It relies on that, which board which they're arguing board games also rely on, which it's I probably dispute in the vast majority of cases. But anyway, yeah, it has got a board game ring to it because of, I think that social deduction element. And what do I think of it? I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, it was... I'd, I'd like to play it again um, because there was a couple of people that knew the game very well. And having first come to eat, there's a few things you need to know otherwise you will get caught out. I need to have a broad understanding of the locations on the ship and also the different tasks you do on the ship and how they link with later yeah. tasks you'll need to do. So I think it would it would benefit from another couple of sessions. Uh, so up to the speed with up to speed with everyone else. But yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. It was a good a good little yeah. break to our Yeah, I, I agree. Otherwise board game and heavy evenings. I mean like I say it was almost a board game. I so the ratings. I'm gonna go with seven and a half out of ten. I like it. It's, I like I like the I just like I like the quick gameplay. Uh, I like the I like the social interaction with it. I'm fun. Gregor, I mean, uh, I'll 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 agree with you. I'll go with seven and a half as well. It's difficult to rank it alongside. I mean, it's been difficult anyway to rank board games alongside each other, let alone this. But yeah, yeah as a yeah. sort of, I mean, this wouldn't work as a board game. That's also the funny thing, like because this this would be completely different as a board game. But and the fact that it borders on board game elements is really inventive I think um, but yeah a 7.5 yeah, I'd probably rate it higher but I'd, I'd probably put it on a 7.5 just because I find it difficult to kind of place within other games that we've played Dan what's your what's your thinking? Four <laughs> Consensus reached <Strong. laughs> It is I mean even halfway through the game last night I was still picking things up Yeah, and I've played it twice before so unless you know like I don't know I think the first time you played, maybe you'll maybe you'll enjoy it better the second time. Um, I feel like I wasn't convinced going into it, which didn't help. Uh, so nothing, nothing convinced me otherwise. To be honest, I don't, I don't. Maybe, maybe it would. Maybe the score would be better. Were the memes not funny enough? <laughs> the memes were just stupid. Memes were great. It was just it. It was just it was just hijacking. It was the hijacking of valid memes <laughs> with these stupid little <laughs> rainbow coloured. It's like, see, I thought I thought maybe the Power Rangers had been revamped. I didn't know what was going on. I was like, what's what the hell is this all about? Um, so no, I'm 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 sticking with a four because I think the the game was sus stuff stuff the characters. Okay, well, it's a roughly general consensus there. Yep. Um, well, that's unusual. Usually, we're quite we're quite consistent. Usually, it's Gregor that that marks things yeah, down. Yeah, it's me. No, but I enjoyed this one. Yeah, so here's this week from the desk of uh, Gregor's leaving us this week with his being new computer. Gregor, I'll let you take it further. Thanks. Yep, this is a new segment we've got on the show where we take turns. We've not quite decided on who's going to be doing it yet, but I'm, I'm at first. Uh, this idea I had in my own life to write letters to people that inspired me or whose work I'd enjoyed um, sort of in the public sphere. Uh, so the first person up for me is Dean Newcomb. He was born on the twenty sixth of April, nineteen eighty four, um, which makes him thirty six years old. 
as of today. He was raised in Nottingham, England. Probably born there, but I appreciate there's not too much information available on his uh, his life, so this has must be put together through various interviews he's done. He started a modelling career in England. Uh, he's moved. He's done uh, jobs and I think lived in New Zealand and Germany before moving to Tokyo in 2009. Originally meant to be there for three months, but he enjoyed it so much he ended up staying for a year. He then left Tokyo for a period of six months before moving back full time, and he stayed there ever since. He's starred in a Metal Gear Solid video game. He's starred in a cinema-released film in Japan. He's ranked in Taekwondo. He's walked coast-to-coast in Japan. For, that's 419 kilometers in just a week. And that was also on a restricted calorie diet um, to raise awareness for the rights of government workers in developing countries. And how I came to know him was, or is, is through his work on the NHK World Channel. Um, you can find it on Sky Channel 507. He's, they're also, they also stream online, uh, but he hosts a sh- he's the occasional host of a show on that channel called Journeys in Japan, where people will where there'll be a single host for an episode, and they'll explore a local community usually, or maybe a certain topic or part of history within Japan. They'll interview different people, and they'll look around various sites that are in the area or relate to that topic. And the first one I saw of him was an episode named Iwati Winter Right, and that was an Oshu, uh, where he took part in the Summon Sai Festival. Uh, we'll talk about that more in a minute. But I've also, he's also got a YouTube channel um, where he does a series, or there's certainly one series called Runaway Japan, or the, the YouTube channel is called Runaway Japan, which he's done a series uh, in which he and a crew venture across Japan for a 50 day period. And the sort of twist is, it's completely self-powered. So he no at no time relies on uh, any sort of mechanical transport means, whether that be uh, car or airplane or boat. He cycles, he runs, he rolls, he inline skates, whoever it takes to get to the next the next checkpoint. And highlights. Includes so he started on the top of Mount Fuji, and at the start of uh, various points of the journey, he, he released on social media a poll, and the watchers of that show would then decide where they would move to next. So it'd be a sort of general direction: north, south, east, west, or north, south, west, depending on where he was. He would he would then put that plan into action. Uh, but day one, he's coming down off Mount Fuji. Uh, this just sums up the my opinion. Come down off Mount Fuji. Um, he's expecting to meet his fan with his bike. Uh, once he's got his bike, he's expecting to complete a 26km downhill sort of trail to the next point in his journey. Turns out the, the van can't get up the hill to the car park he's meant to meet them at. So instead of cycling downhill for 26 kilometers, he has to run it. So day one of a 50-day self-powered journey, thousands of kilometers across Japan, He's already having to run 26 kilometers that he expect he had to. Expecting an easy start. Soaks it up and yeah, continues on from there. One point, but we could forgive him for this. He did say that on one of his Runaway Japan episodes in England, the highest mountain has been Nevis. Just wanted to make that clear. Clear that that is complete fiction. Complete fiction. So that, that's our own fact check. That's our own bit of service for. It's, it's obviously in Wales. The watch, so. Yeah, so that's our own bit of fact check for Runaway Japan. So you're welcome. But yeah, uh, so you guys have watched a 
varying degrees of Dean Newcomb. Before we get to the letter, what are your thoughts? Dan, start with you. I really like him. He's a classic NHK World presenter. Uh, he's he's very entertaining. He's really good. Like He's really down with the people. He's, his Japanese is very yep. good. He's very respectful. He's 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 interested. He's engaged. I'm not totally convinced by the American narrator that's going over the top. Bill Sullivan. Uh, <laughs> it's usually Bill Sullivan. <laughs> well, well, Bill Bill needs a someone needs to find someone to replace Bill. No, but, like the, 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 Dean's Dean's he's very passionate about what he's talking about. He's you know he's not there just just for the sake of it. He clearly has a a deep interest. And connection to Japan, its people, its culture, everything to do with it, and he seems to integrate very well with it. And he's he's just very entertaining. He's he's sort of I don't know. He's he's got that sort. He's got that personality which sometimes we lack a bit on TV these days, where he's actually getting into it, and he's he's showing us and saying, "Look at this. This mm-hmm. is this is this is something which is." unique to Japan, and he has all the information as well. Obviously, he will have researched before yep. he talks about it, but he has, you know, he's he's garnered the information, and he's presenting in a really clear and concise way, so yeah, he's really nice. He's like a really good guy. And Neil, your thoughts on him? Very similar to Dan. I had an issue with the American narrator. Really? Income. Maybe and it wasn't Bill. I'll, I'll check that. Maybe it wasn't Bill. It's just you the contrast it. of Dean Newcomb and the and the American narrator was a bit too too much of a contrast for me. And yeah, he's, but yeah, the the one you sent over where he's kind of getting prepared for, like he's building up a crew and things like that. It seems like a very down to earth guy. He's very mm-hmm. he's, he's very involved in what he's doing as well, and that comes along with his interests just with the culture. And, is he so? He's not always the presenter. He's just a, an occasional presenter. It, so he's he's always. Like he's the main focus on Runaway Japan because that's his channel, and he's, he's I mean, he make, includes a crew and stuff as well, and that was one of the points he made in that sort of pilot episode. But yeah, he's an occasional presenter, so I think he's presented. I'll pick this up and find out if I was wrong, but it's thirteen episodes of Journeys in Japan, mm-hmm. and, and there's been hundreds of episodes of Journeys in Japan. So he's he's not. He, he, I think he's one of. He's certainly on IMDb. He's one of the most credited presenters in Japan on, on Journeys in Japan. Yeah. All right. Yeah. No, seems like a- <laughs> in Japan in general. <laughs> no. I mean, he's still being Parkinson, is he? <laughs> We're the best world in the world. Uh, yeah, yeah, down to earth guy. He's lost what he does, and he's he owns that channel. He's the producer of the channel. Yeah, yeah. Very interesting. Uh, that's the Sky Channel, or no, the, it's the YouTube channel. YouTube channel. It's YouTube channel. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, Journey to Japan's on TV. Oh, it's yeah. on HK World, yeah. But he's he's he's. I mean, he's always a credit presenter, but he's not. He's by no means the face of Journeys in Japan because they've got like myriad presenters. They've got they've got loads of different ones. Yeah, I'd echo those comments. I find them. I think as well. One of his uh, greatest assets is how genuine he comes across. Um, he's always like like you said, really down to earth. I think he's it's a real passion for him, and I think that's what he's tried to do in this Runaway Japan is combine the passions that are his passions that are sort of travel and experience and fitness which he's I think he's nailed to both of them in my opinion uh, but yeah well, we'll move on to the move on to the letter then yeah go for it yep letter time yeah, I think you've seen yep so uh, for the listeners I haven't seen or can't see it um, I've got sort of my family clan crest watermark in the top right hand corner I've got from the disc of 
my full name and just some contact details, and I've got the, just a standard sort of uh, formal letter layout. So I, I won't go through this in, in full detail, um, but I'll just give you a brief summary of the different paragraphs I've got. So, dear Mr. Newcomb, um, just laid out the reason for me writing to him. I had leftover wax after uh, me doing my wedding invites the other year, so I thought I'd make use of this wax stamp and wax that I've got. Um, said privileged. Yep, I know. <laughs> What third world problems? Eh? Leftover wax. <laughs> first world third problems. Century problems. First, first world problems. Leftover wax. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, just saying. My wife and I have regularly watched Journey to Japan for a few years now, which is broadcasting its current world here in Scotland. Mentioned the Wati Winter Right episode, so I, I'll go into more detail on that at this point actually, because this this episode, I, Tara, I know you've watched it in its entirety. The first 20 minutes of this episode is what you'd expect from a typical Journeys in Japan presenter. But the last 10 minutes is what I think sets Dean Newcomb apart in terms of his presenting style because he goes he goes at this. He's, he's in this mid middle of winter, he's in the water, um, sort of thrown this must be freezing cold water over his head in the uh, in the sort of water ritual part. He's got the fire stick as well during the fire bit and then this goes on yeah, for, yeah, yeah, yeah. for hours. I think it's at four or five o'clock in the morning. So you've got all these. I should mention as well. It's all men, and they're all in. I don't know what the best way to describe the attire is, but it's sort of a cloth wrapped around their sort of crotch region. The typical style of briefs, perhaps. Style. But that, that's only that's the only thing they're wearing in the middle of winter. It's absolutely freezing, and four or five in the morning. Hundreds of these people. Hundreds of these men. They throw a bag, a lucky bag, not quite sure what the contents are, into the crowd of people, and it's into good luck if you can get a hand on the bag for the year. And Dean manages to get his hand on the bag. I should expect him a man of his uh, sort of abilities. So, Dan, what did you what did what do you think of the the festival itself and Dean's role in it? I think it's it's a classic. You know, the dynamics always change in a program, especially when they're based in a country with the person who's hosting it is in a traditional commentator from that country. Mm-hmm. So you get that, you know, it adds a whole different flair and it makes it, it makes it more, it makes it more relatable yeah. to, to us as an audience over here when we, have some, when we have somebody who we can relate to but is also as engaged with it. Um, I mean, we've watched loads of we've watched loads of programs on that channel. You know, all varying mm-hmm. levels of, of of content and presenter, and you know the you know local presenters with you know Japanese presenters with Japanese subtitles, Japanese presenters speaking English. Uh, but you don't always get the same as you do when it's somebody from here that goes over and actually does it. Yeah. So so you actually go, you know, yeah. I get, I get what's going on. I can totally relate to what's going on right now because even though he's, even though he lives there, he's still, he, he's, he's still himself. You know, he's still got the the quirks of coming from, you know, the, this this side of the the globe. Yeah, uh, which which I which I really enjoyed, and the whole bag thing as well. It's just, yeah, I mean, it, that, that's the thing. He throws himself at everything, and yeah, I mean, yeah, the effort yeah, on that that alone was. Remarkable, but yeah, I mentioned that. I just say that we've watched a few episodes. Of, we've watched a few episodes of Journeys in Japan at this point. We're uh, 
kind of used to the normal sedate presenters, but uh, along came Dean, and here we are. Yeah. Um, and we've managed to catch up with some of the earlier episodes as well, because they're on, uh, I think they sometimes break, but they're on pretty much every Monday um, on H- in HK World. Um, then said that led me onto the Runaway Japan channel, just uh, sort of highlighting this physical effort he puts in, along with also sort of insight he provides to that yeah. the, the journey he's done and how that relates to the cause of the soul of Japan. Yeah. At the end of every episode, um, I've also put in a bit there because at the end they always kind of ties it together. In one episode, there's the the crew, him and the crew are stood outside Japan's largest waterfall eating these sulfur boiled eggs they've made earlier in the day. I just think it was yeah really quirky. And just at the end, the last paragraph is just in short, just like to say thanks um, for all for all the sort of joy and inspiration you bring to the to the viewers, your viewers around around the globe. So yeah, so I've not I've not signed this yet actually, but it's finished. I'll sign that and get it sent during the week. I've never sent a letter to Japan before because that's where it's based, and <laughs> so I don't know how long it'll take to get back. But if we do get them back, um, I'll share it on the podcast. I will we'll read them verbatim. Just but I'll, I'll give you a sense of. What he's, yeah. what he's replied with but yeah, um, yeah. this is like I say, a series of letters so I want to just say thanks to a lot of people that, that I've admired through the years that have been in the public light or whose work I've, is, uh, I, I, I really appreciate so yeah, first first is Mr. Dean Newcomb very good, I think, I'll, I think I'm going to have a go as well, I've also got leftover wax that he's using yep <laughs> <laughs> Common problem here in Scotland. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely, got wax coming out of the Indian. (laughs) So maybe I can put that to put that to work. Um, But yeah, we'll we'll definitely follow up with this. Uh, So this uh, takes us on nicely to my topic this week. (laughs) Which has nothing to do with this whatsoever. (laughs) Which is speaking of Dean Newcomb. Speaking of wax. <laughs> so my, I'm about to be waxing lyrical. <laughs> it semi leads on from the fire, I kind of, but I am going uh-huh. to discuss how coronavirus has impacted the jobs market, jobs needs, jobs loss. I just want to cover it because there's it's been it's, it's a massive shake up this year for almost every industry. I was previously in the airline industry. I saw the shake up firsthand, going from closing terminals to minimum passengers, minimum baggage, and seen people affected mostly in the arts industries. I've just got a quick list of jobs I've seen that have diminished. Well, jobs at risk. I put them as. Uh, fashion industry, transport industry, retail as high street retail shops, airports, hospitality, including meaning pubs and restaurants, events and performers, and beauticians, just to name a few. But on the other side of that, we've got jobs that are coming out of this: manufacturing jobs, software and engineering jobs are definitely. I think they're going to start exploding. They've been exploding for the last decade, but I think it's going to explode further. Delivery and warehouse jobs, uh, pickers, supermarket jobs, and 
take away hospitality are ones that are benefiting from all this. Uh, especially, I'm going to see a boom in the... I say the delivery is going to be the big one. Everything. Yes. Uh, I, I, I was uh, having a conversation this week. People, like, think of your grand and granddads, your mum and dad, people who generally go Christmas shopping on the high street, they go to Argos, they go to the big shopping malls at Christmas, can't do that this year, we can within very limited circumstances. Everything's going to be online. I would even hazard a guess online sales could go up 50%. I don't know what's your best estimates on that for Christmas presents this year. Between 10 and 3,000%. 10 and 3,000. That's a good estimate. That's my confidence interval on that. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, it's everybody that's going to be out of out of the no, it's bad but everyone's going to be shopping online this year. People are not going to be going out for food over winter. So now people are locking down. Takeaways have been booming this year, and a lot of home home DIY, home do-it-yourself is also becoming a big thing. And I've been okay this year. I think unemployment is down at four point five percent. Last tallied up last month, but expected to go to eight percent unemployment by April. By what is what? Well, that's been the latest figures that have been publicised, which is relatively low in comparison to other countries. Um, but obviously, it's still a major factor. There's been said that people are going to have to retrain, and it's it's the fact that it's that's true. People are going to have to retrain. The people there's not going to be the hospitality dogs, uh, the ones where there's not going to be the need for high street fashion. There's not going to be the need for beauticians, I think that'll beauticians, photographers, people even involved in events, weddings, performances. Imagine all all the people that are in the events and performance industry have they're just they're just not working this year. Even when theatres return it won't be anywhere near the capacity it will. Music venues won't be anywhere near the capacity they were for certainly well, I think a very long time. Um, most people I know have been okay because working from home for large companies and a lot of companies have actually benefited from that. But yeah, very big mix. Uh, I think college courses are going to probably start booming. College courses, university, a lot of people will be rethinking, especially with government incentives to go into healthcare now. I think that's probably going to make her make a difference, there's going to be more funding going into people retraining for public sector jobs, perhaps. Do you guys have any inputs into this? Do you, what, what have you seen? Absolutely necessary that people need to retrain at this stage to fill a gap that might... I mean, there are people in the entertainment industry and retail industry are going to be or certainly the high street retail are going to be severely disrupted over the next at least six months. I think we can say that fairly unequivocally, but there's no, I don't think there's much reason to think this is going to be, uh, like theatre's never going to return, for instance, or theatre won't have returned by this time next year. I don't think we're at the stage we can say that, because we could be in a position where it has returned back to near normal or normal levels, or pre, pre-COVID levels, or greater than pre-COVID levels due to the support that everybody's bestowed upon them. But yeah, there's no doubt that um, this will be a difficult period for a lot of people whilst we do recover. But I don't, I don't 
I still don't view it as a this is what it's going to be and we're going to need to live with it indefinitely. I still think there'll be a lot of need for, particularly the, the arts and entertainment industries um, post-COVID. Probably, I'd say retail, high street retail is going to be more impacted by this because of the behavioural change of people during lockdown because people have been forced to go into that sort of, people that would never have thought about online shopping before have had to have had to look at it as a an option, whereas they wouldn't have made that transition. So I, I think it was inevitable it was going to increase anyway the online shopping as as it becomes more green ingrained in our society. But I don't think it would have. I mean, this just speeded up the process, I think, and uh, and sort of gone beyond what it would have went, went under under certain natural circumstances. Yeah, I think it's more just more with the behavioural change. Yeah, I think exactly. there's definitely because the to return to the way people were going out to the pubs and clubs every weekend, I think will definitely change. And that's where beauticians and fashion probably got a lot of their money. It's people going out, yeah, din- yeah. dinners, balls, weddings. Well, weddings are always going to be there, but people going out on Saturday afternoon, Saturday night, Friday night. But, but I think people still crave um, sort of social interaction. And so those things will resume as soon as we're able to. I don't think that's going to cause any lasting behavioural change. Maybe for the online shopping, but people are still... Higher street retail will still be a thing. It'll still be a but, thing. I don't think people will be spending... putting the same concentration on high-end fashion, seeing the need for fashion industry and right. beauticians. Because I just don't think people will be going out as much as they were. Why not? It's just a behavioural change. We're being put in, there'll be a lot of people who will... It's, you're getting into a swing of not going out. It's... I mean, we were going to the pub almost every weekend before. I don't think we'll get back to that. Just because people, people aren't used to it anymore. Yeah, I've not heard anybody sitting at home thinking, I'm really glad I don't need to go out and speak to anybody anymore. <laughs> like, they can't wait to get back out. Like, yeah, can't wait to get people, to the pub. But a lot of people, but a lot of people won't be. Yeah, I know, but in the long, uh, what I'm is in the long term, that this won't have... I mean, we don't know, but if we make the assumption this has got... COVID has got some sort of end to it in the next year or two, then I think the conclusion has to be that in the long term this will, that we will return to sort of behaviours that we had prior to lockdown. For the most part, of course, like we've instigated sort of behavioural change in some people that have resisted it before, but for the most part, in terms of going out and social interaction, I think that'll stay the same. Whether people's priorities change, um, I don't know, but I, I can't see is not mingling as much as we used to. Yeah. Dan, what's your what's your thoughts? You don't want to know. <laughs> uh, I I believe two one of two things. Number one, this virus is nobody's fault, but it is everybody's responsibility to do what they must do to bring it under control. So measures that are put in place to mitigate it, whether it be a tier system or partial lockdowns or total lockdowns or whatever type of system, whatever they want to call it, circuit breakers, all that stuff. But at the same time, I believe that fundamentally people are stupid and impulsive and unreliable. And we can say that people's behaviors change to fall in line with changes in societal expectations or expectations of standards at the same time now we are seeing people that despite the fact that we are trying to put measures in place to mitigate the spread of this virus 
people are reverting to behaviors pre-COVID and they're ignoring the systems which are in place to mitigate it. I think compliance Uh, is still quite high, although lower than it was. Yeah, there are more instances. There are more instances of people talking about doing things and actually doing things which contravene these measures being put in place. Mm-hmm. I, you know, we we talk about it plenty, and I am not, uh, you know, I'm not Nicholas Sturgeon's biggest fan when it comes to certain things. However, I do feel sorry for her when she is standing there telling people to do what you're bloody told, follow the instructions, follow the rules. They're there for a reason, and people are going no, and she's having to say to people, stop breaking the rules because she knows that people are doing it yeah but what, what about uh, specifically on the subject of the sort of industries that aren't able to cope through this period what what are your thoughts on people in those industries and do they need to retrain at this at this point no or, and will we have a need for them one on the assumption that this ends at some point over the next couple of years yes yeah, I think it's all. I see it as a temp. I see it as a temporary thing. The the the, the people are people are panic buying at jobs. They're going, oh no, I need to now find a new job. I need to be retrained because I've got no prospect. Well, you do have a prospect. You just have to be patient, and it's not easy being patient when you're being pulled from pillar to post yeah, all the time. It's not. It's not easy to be patient when you rely on your job yeah. for income as well. So I mean, I'm talking about airlines, uh, airline industry. Oh, be uh, let twelve thousand people go. Um, the airline industry, those people will have to find another job. There won't be the return yeah, but, back to that. But, do but the airlines to, will return. Yeah. yeah do, do they need to? Do they need to at this stage say, "I need to completely change my career," or do they need to say, "Let me find, uh, let me try and find a job for the next six months to a year, and then let me reevaluate," rather than, "Yeah, let's write that off. That's never coming back." I think it, it depends on what support they've got as well and obviously the government's done a, a really good job of keeping as many people as you say they've got quite a low unemployment rate compared to internationally and that's because that, that's I'd imagine almost entirely due to the fact that we're the government subsidised 8% of people's wages and so it's yeah. not it's meant that a lot of companies where they would have let people go haven't had to let people go yeah. whereas if that support does end and then people I don't think it's necessarily it, the government's put a lot of incentives in for people to retrain and that's great um, if it's up, if they're retrained to something they want to do, but if they're in a career that they love, that's been impacted by COVID, then I don't think now particularly is time to say, right, I'm going to retra- I'm going to completely change my career, and then only to find out a year down the line, <laughs> one year into there's a year's worth of retraining, yeah, that ever returned to normal. I don't, I think there's yeah. still time left before they need to make such big judgment calls, and if they're retraining, they're likely not going to get a job. I think it also depends on the expenditure of the businesses as well, and the, and the 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 sectors of employment. Because I remember reading at the start of uh, locked, you know, at the start of COVID when it was all kicking off, and they were saying there were companies such as Jet Two, who had already paid for their year supply of fuel. Yeah. So they already paid and invested their money into the fuel that they were going to need for the entire year, and then this all got pulled out from underneath them, and they weren't going to get their money back. So they had to take into account the fact that they'd already spent millions of pounds on something they weren't even going to need. Yeah. 
and this was at a time when you know we also were hit with uh, irregularities in the in the price of fuel and the price of oil because of issues that were going on. So the whole situation wasn't great for them. So it all depends on the you know the the forecasting that companies are doing and the money that they have to spend beforehand to ensure they have something. You know, retail is in the same way that that retail struggled at the start to have enough supply in their shops is because they forecast fortnightly or monthly for what they're going to need. And the problem is when they submit the forecast, they can't alter them. So they're going to get in their supplies based on the forecasts, Mm -hmm. but the forecasts have actually changed dramatically all of a sudden because everyone needs to buy toilet paper and flour. They don't need to, they're just dead. Well, uh, needs needs an inverted commas then. They have an impulse for toilet paper and for flour. Uh, So it's hard for, for, for... for areas where they have to do that type of investment to ensure, and unfortunately, if you if you have any interest in business and the way companies work and the the areas that come you know the area that areas of employment actually work in, you could almost have predicted the companies that would have been immediately struck by the issues that came up out of it. Yeah, I don't think there were any surprises that came out of this. I think maybe there are a couple of a couple of wobbles from retail section sectors, but uh, companies in retail. But that was more because they were less; they had less of an online presence, so they struggled because the footfall fell in their in their retail on the streets. So, but, but with regard, so it works in the same way with having with retaining staff. That if you are retaining, you can retain people, and you can. T- take advantage of the of the furlough scheme and any other financial support schemes that were put in place for businesses and small businesses, but it all depends on what what money you actually have in the bank, what you've already spent. Unless you're Celtic football team and you can't be using the furlough scheme. Uh, but I'll go back to don't get me started <laughs> on that again. Uh, I'll go back. Yeah, the, I 100 agree. If someone is in a job they love, you can't tell them not to do it. Or they even. Even this is not going to sway them from doing what they love. But people who were not so much, well, not, not in those situations, maybe just doing the job and mm-hmm. were maybe in the balance of thinking about doing something else, this is going to be a, this is the opportunity for them really to jump into yeah, something else. But at the same time, you might be, you might be in a job you, you might not even care for, but you're, you're 45 years old. You're thinking, I've built up 25 years experience in this field. It might not be, it, it might not be what I choose to do if I don't need to work, but I'm good at it, and for that reason, I'd quite continue, I'd quite like to continue doing it because it, it brings. And I have sufficiently saved money. I saved money to I can retire early. Exactly. So they're thinking I've still got another uh, twenty to twenty-five years, and I'm getting paid quite well based on my twenty-five years' experience in this field. I, I don't yeah. see the need to why what incentive what incentive does that person have to to retrain at this stage? I'm not I'm not I'm not saying that won't change, but and it's entirely up to each individual. Um, but I, I can't see the benefit, and it depends on the length of the retraining as well. If you can retrain to something you want, really want to do in six months, uh, and you're getting paid a similar salary, that's a different conversation to if you're if you've got built twenty five years up. 25 years experience in a field um, so it depends yeah. on individual, individual circumstances but I, I don't 
I don't see the need for everyone to retrain just now. I think it's for point. Uh, it it will benefit. That's not to say it won't benefit a lot of people, and it won't be a great opportunity for a lot of people. But I don't think if you're out of a job just now, I don't see. I I don't this see it as a necessity to retrain, find another job, perhaps, but to retrain uh, in the, in the sort of meaning that's been banded about. I don't I don't think you need to rush into. Yeah. It's all. Yeah. No one, no one knows what's going to be on the other side of this. Yeah, uh, I know. As, but I mean, probably the one that probably stands out for you, the one that's probably two industries that are going to be majorly hit will be the transport industry and the car industry. I think there's going to be a mass working from yeah. home mentality in the future, and those are two industries that will, yeah, undeniably bring in a lot less income in the future. Well, here's the here's as they say here's the the Green New Deal. Here's the opportunity to to diverge from from what we're actually producing because we are there, there's going to be companies now i saw a i saw a recent uh, article a, re- a reputable article about businesses in the us major mainly social media businesses such as twitter and facebook who forecast that they're going to make a lot of this home working permanent yeah they're not going to need it but then that has an that has a knock on impact because they'll still have the employees but also they will you know, there won't be property rental or property, the property market will struggle for bit for for so those buildings and you know the, the states aren't going to make the money on the properties anymore and if they're renting them there's not going to be the requirement in in general business you know business rates will change for properties rental prices will have to be adjusted they'll have to reevaluate it and if big companies start doing that then little companies are going to start doing it more and more, as I would imagine, if they are able to. Yeah, startups are not um, going to be hiring out their London offices anymore. I can't imagine. As, and the commercial property market is going to take an astronomical yeah. hit for the foreseeable future. Yeah. You don't need the London offices anymore. Because they've no. done the, done the What's that going to do for for companies that are responsible for managing and maintaining those off? You know, yeah. the the... The, the what's it called the administrative side of things as well you won't need the employees Credit Monday Resident- is going to Res- take going to be as that's, that's it, relied on offices residential will take, yeah. take a hit as well because I mean the main yeah. the main thing in London if you, the main draws for living in London is I mean if you're working there at a salary and then also the amount of choice you've got in terms of how to spend your leisure time but a lot that's been taken away from you yeah, as, yeah. so we are seeing I've not, I've not seen any data on this but certainly read a few articles to say there's been a big push for people moving out to the countryside and that's how they see their working life going. I mean, it's a big call, <laughs> but that's how they see their working life going um, from now on. Yeah. Well, you can, I've had, even if you're if you in a different country, I mean, there's nothing stopping you, Gregor, going to Spain for a month. Yeah, well, there's somebody, somebody of our work that's in a villa in the Balearics. Yeah, so I've, got who, I've got a friend who went to Ibiza. It's oh, just it's a tough life. Moved, Ibiza, moved to Ibiza for the summer, just yeah, <laughs> just because there was no the rent, rental ran out in their own place and just said, "Well, why do I need to be in one place?" So the one who got an internet connection, I'll just fly like, Ibiza That's quarantine. It. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that'll be it though, because you'll have you know companies like BT who supervise and maintain the internet and the connectivity of the country they're going to be they're going to be in greater demand if more people are working from home because they're going to have to ensure that the facilities are in place so there are you know when when opportunities drop there are 
there are opportunities that arise. Oh yeah, well, I mean, you just need but to look at this. That's but then that's uh, that's a commitment for retraining. Like we're saying, mm-hmm. like at what point do you actually go? I need to retrain, or can I just do this on a temporary basis? But how, how much? How if you look at the stock market, it's been held up by a lot of tech companies just now, just because they are doing so well. Yeah, and at, at expense of a lot of other industry. But if you look at that, how many jobs is that creating? If Amazon sales quadruple, how many more staff are they taking on? Yeah. They're not taking on four times as much staff. Exactly. Of course, the, the, there's other there's other opportunities though that, that will come out because people. I mean, this goes back to our other question on fire, actually, Neil. Good, good call. But in terms of people, are, people are still going to spend their money on things. Yeah. The, those that have money to spend just now are still going to want to. I mean, I know I've spent a lot of money. <laughs> Yeah. I noticed this very much uh, at the start of lockdown because I'd just moved into my house. But Wayfair exploded. Probably mostly to do with yeah, mostly to do with people. It was one of the only companies still delivering during April. But mm-hmm. people spending people spending money in the house. They're spending. They're buying desks. They're buying um, yeah. monitors. They're buying new laptops. They're buying home office stuff. And Podca- people are sp- buying podcasting equipment. People are buying, yeah, buying podcasting equipment. People are spending <laughs> people are spending time in their house instead of in the office. So they've got the people who are lucky enough to be working from home um fully paid, they've got much more disposable income. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I, actually that, that was probably I probably wasn't entirely true what I said about Amazon because if you're buying more things, of course those things need to be produced, but it's not as if yeah. Amazon is not creating tech jobs was my point, I think. Yeah. Necessarily in the, yeah, in the yeah. companies that are benefiting from it. It is. It's, it's all about opportunity and and taking the opportunity when the you know when it comes about because like you say, people still need to work. Yeah. And it's about accepting that I need to do this right now. Things things will get better, people. Things will get better. And yeah, a lot of these companies a lot of these industries are driven by investment and the, I think the problem is now that the risk of investment is too high. So just when there's yeah. certainty back in so what's, what's happening now, companies will start investing again. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think I've well summed up. Yep. Down, Beautiful. Down a, few, a few avenues there. Um, now, another, to another spectrum of the topic world. Uh, <laughs> 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 I like, like that spectrum. Out, out of this world. Spectrum. Out of this world, Neil. <laughs> we're jumping about today. Um, so we've got Dan with his top 10, let's say, astronomical, astrological phenomena. Astronomical. Astronomical. I'm not going to go through my top 10 star signs. Astrology. <laughs> astrological will come up in one of the conspiracy corners, I think. <laughs> Quite okay, possibly. Dan, I'll let you explain this one. I think we're going to have to now. So I've I'm doing I'm, you know I'm here to break the mold and as much as our dear listener likes hearing about uh, food and more food and possibly some more food I like uh, breaking out of that and so I'm going to do my top ten astronomical <laughs> phenomena. So this could be an object, this could be an event, this could be anything that takes place out of the the remit of a lovely little blue dot. Uh, so coming in at number 10, I have the, the Kuiper Cliff. Now, for, for, for those of you in the know, uh, the Kuiper Belt is an area of our solar system beyond Neptune. So these are trans-Neptunian bodies, which uh, 
They're not particularly big, and they are in a disc going around our sun, and they're all I- they're icy, icy objects which are being left over and formed as as our solar system came into being. And the Kuiper belt stretches out, and it suddenly stops. And sci- uh, astronomers don't know why. Uh, there, there appears to be a gap between the Kuiper belt and the Oort cloud. I'll get onto the Oort cloud shortly. And some scientists... I mean, this is almost a conspiracy corner into itself, folks. Some scientists suspect there must have been a tenth planet, even though we only have eight now. I'll get onto that yeah. later as well. Uh, but they suspect that this strange lack of objects, this gap which exists in our solar system uh, could only be the result of a, a, a body maybe the size of Earth or Mars which is which was formed and goes around that area of our solar system but nobody's managed to find it so it's all very much maybe or maybe not really sure about that one kind of thing so yeah the, the Kuiper Cliff comes in at number 10. Number 9 I have the Oort Cloud and the Oort Cloud is just a massive, it's just a massive shell of rocks and debris that uh, make the outer limit of our solar system. For a lot of people, they think that our solar system sort of stops around Neptune, maybe go as far as the, the Kuiper Belt that goes around, goes beyond that. But the Oort Cloud begins about 2000 AUs away from the Sun. And an AU is the distance, one AU is the distance from the Earth to the Sun. So 2,000 times that it begins. And it's just, a, it's just a massive ball of rock and debris that is trapped by the Sun's gravitational pull. And it stretches as far as one quarter of the way to, our, to the nearest star to us, which is Proxima Centauri. So it's, it's absolutely massive and the outer edge of the oak cloud is the outer limits of the sun's gravitational pull so it's just an extraordinary distance i mean to put into context i recently did this was talked to someone about this if you were to put it into meters the distance going from from the sun to the edge of the the oak cloud you'd be talking from central scotland all the way down to central england if it was measured in meters that that's how far it is for perspective. So it's absolutely huge and colossal. So yeah, Oort Cloud number nine. Number eight, we're coming a bit closer to home, and we're going to Pluto, the tragic Shakespearean story of Pluto, discovered in 1930 as a planet, Und- got, got relegated, got relegated in uh, 2006, and it's it's a smaller than our moon, so it's not particularly big. And 2006, it was re- rebranded as a dwarf planet. It has five of its own moons, so it has five five bodies that circle around it. One third of it, one third of it is covered in water, frozen. It's ice, frozen water, and that one third is three times the total volume of water in our oceans. So there's a lot of potential there for exploration as as we push out into into the solar system and beyond. And on special occasions, when Pluto in its orbit becomes comes closer to the the sun. It develops its own atmosphere very briefly of of methane and water and hydrogen as it as it evaporates off. So it creates its own little atmosphere for a short time before it all dissipates into space. Uh, we will add that it's, we will add that it's almost zero degree Kelvin on Pluto. 
It is not nearly zero degree Kelvin. It's warmer than that. Not that cold. Uh, zero. zero. Two, minus two forty, so thirty Kelvin. Ah, <laughs> uh, it's still plenty of space. So yeah, I could still put some sun cream on <laughs> at that temperature. <laughs> I mean, it, I mean, it's colder in Avimo, so yeah. not that bad. Um, so number seven, I've got the Big Bang, reputed to have taken place thirteen point eight billion years ago. Depending on who you ask, I know some people that would say six thousand years ago. <laughs> so uh, if it happened, and if it even happened at all, oh, conspiracy corner strikes again. Uh, the Big Bang, so Big Bang took place thirteen point eight billion years ago. Uh, there, there's no actual location where it took place because technically it took place everywhere at exactly the same time. The the Big Bang took ten to the minus thirty five seconds to happen. For the universe to take its shape, it took 10 to the minus 6 seconds. And for basic elements to form, it took 3 seconds. So the, the whole the whole event was unbelievably quick. I thought I was having but a productive it's... weekend as well. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. Come on, we need to, you need to get more in. Stop, stop buying that coffee and spend more time. <laughs> so, yeah, I just, I think, I just think the whole, the whole event and the concept of the event is extraordinary. And also the prospect that it may not have been the first Big Bang, so to speak, to ever have taken place. There may be a cycle of events that actually happens over billions of years. So, yeah, number seven, Big Bang. Number six is Saturn. Now, Saturn's on, on the surface, doesn't look particularly exciting. It's one of the, the gas giants of our lovely solar system. It's number six of our planets. And the studies that have been done, and as you get into it, I just find it so fascinating. So, so, the surface of Saturn is covered in lightning storms, so it has some type of a you know atmosphere similar to us on the on the on the on the outer layer. And as these lightning storms, which are thousands of times more powerful than anything on Earth, they it ignites and reacts with methane, and this methane is turned into soot. So, as this soot begins to fall being pulled by the gravity and the pressure of the planet, the pressure pushes on the soot and turns it into diamonds. So Saturn, at one level, rains diamonds. But as these diamonds fall, fall, they liquefy. And when you get to 40,000 kilometers down into the atmosphere, the sheer pressure that that's exerted by the planet causes gases to behave like molten metal. So as the liquid helium falls... It actually produces heat, and the heat from this liquid helium is what creates the storms and the weather systems that can be seen on the surface. So it's just, I love it, just beyond anything. Just the thought of it raining diamonds, now, the sheer quantity of diamonds that must exist, and then the whole thing starts again is just astounding. Is it we're not charter a spaceship and pick those diamonds up? You know what? You're not the first person to say that to me recently. <laughs> Uh, I didn't quite want to get into the get into the complicated de- details of pressure, so that was number six. Number five, we're going further away to a star. This star is called Vega. It's one of the brightest stars in our night sky, uh, and it's brighter than it should be. One of the reasons why it makes it on this list. It's unusually bright, but it also has some very unusual characteristics for its size. Scientists have studied it, and they found that it isn't a sphere like uh, that you'd expect for most stars. It is actually sort of an oval shape. And the reason for this is the speed at which the star is spinning. It's estimated the star is spinning at 160 miles per second. Sorry, 170 miles per second, 
which is 93% the maximum velocity of a star that size could achieve. If it got up to 100%, the star would rip itself apart. So this star is teetering on the edge of teetering on the edge of the oblivion, and its existence is one of the many things that baffle scientists, astronomers, and astrophysicists. Number four doesn't even have a name. It's just called HD one four zero two eight three, and it's a star, and it's been nicknamed the Methuselah Star because, as I said, the universe is thirteen point eight billion years old. But the top end age of this star is 14.4 billion years old. So they don't actually know how that's possible. It sits somewhere between 13.2 and 14.4 billion years. And it's a second generation star, which means that this star was formed out of the remains of a previous star. And it's only 190 light years away from us. So it's quite close in the grand scheme of things. And it's just extraordinary that because it's one of those moments where scientists go, these are the figures, this is what we've found, this is what the, the the system tells us is the possibility of each end of the scale. It goes beyond what we understand about the universe already, but I think it just goes to show that what we know about the universe is very limited as it stands, so the possibilities are almost infinite as to what, what actually goes on out there. Um, so yeah, so I've now come to my top three, and I will I will open the floor to to my my voyages of discovery, and <laughs> I'll go to just just while Gregor holds himself together, <laughs> I'll go to I'll go to Neil first. So Neil, what is your mate. number three? Well, I'll certainly learned a lot today, that's for sure. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not really well versed in the astronomical phenomena until this. Uh, I went for fairly commonly known, probably the most commonly known phenomena, um, and probably for personal reasons than the the vast detail that you went into, Dan, but shooting stars. <laughs> <laughs> you can't even tell us. What, what are they, Neil? Go on, tell us what. They're not stars. <laughs> no, shooting, shooting stars. Stars. Local, shooting stars is a Game show it's in the mid-90s. It's a game show name. <laughs> oh my god. Fishing stars are expired stars. Back to Matt Lucas. Expired stars that dying stars. <laughs> no, I think you're... I think you're... Sorry, Neil. No, they're not. You mean shooting stars <laughs> as in the ones you see in the sky, the streaks of light? Yeah, they're just debris yeah, falling to are, earth. Those are comets. Yeah. Or debris falling to earth. Yeah. I was told they were dead stars. What? Who told Five you that? Ago. Who? Was that? Was this Express again? <laughs> amazing. <laughs> Not the Express again. But anyway, yeah, so it is debris flying Dive. from... Has nothing to do with falling. That. Fall, <laughs> falling. Falling. Falling to the Earth's atmosphere and burning up in yep. the sky, and that's why we see shooting stars. I have only seen one major shower of them five to six years ago and uh, yeah it was very nice to watch I enjoyed it that's my input for number three shooting stars you ever seen shooting stars I have I've seen when I was in Canada I saw I saw shooting stars I saw the northern lights and I saw the milky way so right Gregor your number I'd have thought you'd have got good views of 
milky opaque sky. You could, when the sky is clear. Yeah. Canada, you get much more clear skies in Canada. I don't know. It, when I mean, it's not crystal clear, but when I'm when you're up at Glen Cole, it's a clear night. You can see it fairly readily. Okay, right, Gregor, your number, your number, your number three. <laughs> right, I've got four. So <laughs> I'm going to put this in order and kind of tie the two together. And if you don't accept, tie that, two together. I'll, I'll tie call, two. You can tie two. Yeah, I'll call one of them uh, or more mention. Number three is the mighty black hole. Very good. Dan, you're number two? No. Uh, so, yeah, so it's interesting. This, um, my favourite story about the black hole is the famous bet that Stephen Hawking yep. and Kip Thorne had about whether black holes existed. Yep. Yeah, it was made in 1974. It was an insurance policy laid down by Stephen Hawking because he claimed that they did exist. And so he wanted some compensation if they if it was found out at the earlier time that they mm-hmm. did not exist. And so this is his seminal work, or seminal work, but sort of most famous book in yeah. the brief history of time. He said he would have the consolation of winning a four-year subscription to the magazine Private Eye. Oh, which I'm sure yeah. we're all familiar. Which I'm sure some, we're of all, subs- some of us have a subscription. <laughs> well, I mean, you could, you could, well, you couldn't have got this because he, he did, he did lose the bet, and when his his, his theory was accepted. Um, if black holes do exist, which uh, Kip conceded did, Kip will get one year's subscription of Penthouse oh, magazine. Far more sophisticated. So when they made a bet in 1975, they were 80 percent certain that the one of their sort of observations was a black hole. He did contend that the book they were about 95 percent certain, but the bet wasn't settled at that point. 1988, brief history of time. But I'm pretty sure was settled eventually. Yeah, conceded the bet. They paid the specified penalty, which was one year subscription to Penthouse. So they both won. <laughs> Kip got a subscription, and Stephen Hawking got the <laughs> and got the honour of having the series accepted. So yeah, uh, I mean beyond that, they are just um, it's always a it's always a delight to hear an astrophysicist talking about them, whether it be Lawrence Krauss or Neil mm-hmm. Tyson. It's always fun having them uh, answer a question from from someone on if some some certain circumstances occur to yeah. a black hole or whatnot. It's always interesting because it's highly theoretical. Absolutely. Number My three, number sorry. three is it's dark matter slash dark energy. So dark matter and dark energy sort of intertwined. Um, they make up eighty five percent of the universe. With only fifteen percent of the universe be made up of what we would class as matter, standard standard elemental matter. Uh, it's believed to be dark energy is believed to be the force that is pushing the expansion of our universe. It was discovered that our universe is actually speeding up, and it's believed that this is the for- This is what is driving that force. Now, the problem with dark matter is it doesn't have any electromagnetic signature, so they can't see it. That is it. They haven't been able to actually concretely prove that it exists but all the evidence points towards that it does so it's, it's a fascinating thing and to know that most of the universe is made up of something that we know nothing about but we have a distinct suspicion that it exists is it, it's very it's very scientific i think because if you think of the history of science so many major scientific discoveries whether it be gravity electromagnetism 
you know, quantum physics, it's all, even black holes, it's all started off with this, you know, there's evidence that points towards it and there's plenty of arguments and, and people who disagree with it. But there's, you know, invariably it's it's proved itself to be accurate because it fits into the models. So dark matter and dark energy is one of those things that fits into those models, and it's just such a, such a mysterious thing that we that we live with, and, and that we seem to interact with, and we don't even realize it. So yeah, dark energy, dark matter, my number three. So Neil, number two. Number two, I'm following Gregor here with the black hole, first introduced to me by Mr. Morgan Freeman. On through the wormhole on oh, Discovery classic. Channel. <laughs> uh, yeah. Just uh, an area of extreme gravity where nothing can escape, including light. I don't understand it. I've watched plenty of documentaries on it, and I don't think I ever will, ever will understand it. But it's it's quite interesting that actually we've got the first ever photo of it last yeah. year as well, which was exciting. So that was a very big deal in the astronomical world. But yeah, well known. Uh, I think we're probably through our lifetime. We'll, I'm sure we may know more about it. Yeah, speculation. Yeah, I expect we saw a little bit more yeah. about it. Yeah. yeah. Right, Gregor, your number two. My number two, a uh, bit more simple in concept, is the solar eclipse. That's nice. I like now, that. I just really like it because it's. I mean, it relies on the size and distance of the three, Earth three, not closest, but most dominant astronomical bodies, um, Earth, which is, yeah, we we live in it. And the Moon, which is the biggest thing in the, uh, second brightest and second biggest thing in the sky, and the Sun, which is the biggest and brightest thing in the sky. And for, you could, you put in lunar eclipse in here as well, but there's something, more dramatic about the, uh, a solar eclipse in that it, it can only exist it, it, given a very limited set of mm-hmm. circumstances and the fact it does exist during our lifetimes whereas it's, it's also only going to exist on a certain on earth for a certain window of time and the fact that it does exist is just um, r- really I wouldn't say magical but it's special mm-hmm. I'd say because of how dramatic it is and if you look at the history how unknown it was as well, and it's you know, just yeah, just so elegant. It's the fact that the the maths once I think that's one of the things I enjoy is just the number the number work that goes on in a, a astronomy that the sun is three thousand times larger than the moon, but it is conveniently three thousand times further away than the moon is to us, so it lines up perfectly. But what extraordinary, yeah. you know. Plenty of people say the moon's artificial and it was built by aliens, so that's why it all seems to line up so perfectly. It's like, shut up. It's it's one of the wonders of of the universe. That's what it is. Yeah, it's just remarkable um, in terms of something of those sizes uh, creating such a sort of visual spectacle uh, in in our skies. I'd liken it to, I mean, people in the future, well, in the future won't have this. But they'll have something. They'll, they'll see, sort of, the Milky Way colliding with the Andromeda Galaxy, mm-hmm. for instance. It's like billions of years in the future. I can imagine. I mean, that'll, that'll take obviously years, and that'll be a part of their sort of um, night sky. But yes, yeah, that uh, compared to that sort of spectacle mm-hmm. and that sort of 
sort of small part of uh, what they can view in their mm-hmm. specific Yes, that's number two. Cool. Clips. My my number two. I, I feel I should have prefixed all this and said that I love astronomy. It's one of my favorite subjects, and if I could do one of the things I could do other than what I do, I would be an astronomer or an astrophysicist or something like that because I love it. But my number two is something that's hypothetical, like most of the things on my list. Uh, no, not all, most of the things, but some of the things. Uh, it is a a thorn zitkow object. Now, the Thorn Zitkow object is named after Kip Thorn and Anna Zitkow, who theorized this object. Now, in in the in the story of stars, in the life cycle of stars, stars can do a number of wonderful things. They can they can turn into gas, you know, super red giants. They can turn into neutron stars. They can turn into black holes. They can turn into planetary nebulae. They can do all number of things. But they proposed that it was possible for a neutron star which was a, a star which was near the end of a, of a life cycle, could potentially hijack another star and live inside of it. So you would have a neutron star which would appear to be a, a red supergiant because it had gone into the middle and it had almost used it as a shell. And they proposed, and, and this was purely hypothetical, I believe it was in the 70s they proposed it, and it suspected that one may exist. According, it possibly in our Milky Way, they're not totally sure, it might be on the edge, and it's called HV2112. And what's unusual as well about it is that, in accordance with the theory, the outer shell would consist of a lot of heavier elements. Uh, for those who maybe don't know, most you know, the stars, stars are where all the elements of the universe are created. That is the, the, where we get everything. That is why they call us stardust, because everything that we are made of and everything else is made of comes from the comes from the reactions in a star and the death of stars so the heavy elements that exist on the outside would be an indicator that that was the case as well that that this object existed uh, and they suspect it does and if, if they're right i think it would be one of the most extraordinary things that you know, people talk about binary star systems or trinary star systems but to have a star that lives within a star mind-blowing so yeah, that's my my number two. So we're going for the the grand number ones. Neil, number one. Well, I've also knocked Gregor up a peg with the solar eclipse for my number one. <laughs> I yeah, it's a, it's a large spectacle. My fondest memory of it, and I think this I'm just looking at the history of solar eclipses in the UK, and there was a total solar eclipse over Cornwall in 1999. I think that's the one that probably got the most press. Yeah. If anyone can confirm that. We don't, yeah, well of. Yeah, we don't get total eclipses in the UK uh, very often, according to this list. Uh, so, yeah, and that, I mean, that was national news. And even your, every, every local shop was selling glasses. I remember yeah, that. It was like a... It was a yeah, it was it was it was something like eleven minutes past eleven on eleventh November or something ridiculous. Yeah, that was not. I've got eleventh of August, nineteen ninety nine. Eleven, eleven. Was it? What time was it? Uh, it's not got time here. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. So, total total eclipse over Cornwall. So that was obviously most of the UK would have yeah. seen almost almost a total eclipse. Uh, yeah, and it's just it was kind of like a national. A national effort at the time for everyone getting yeah. glasses and watching it. Yeah, it was. I remember watching it in the back garden. It was extraordinary. Yeah. Cool. 
and people want to use losing their eyesight. <laughs> That's it, we go. It <laughs> Looking at the clip for three yeah. seconds. <laughs> oh, dear. Right, <laughs> Craig. Yeah, I must say that actually it was very close. This was the first one I thought of. This solo clip was the first one I thought of, and it was my number one until I thought about this. But they're probably quite interchangeable on any given day. But yeah, my number one is so the two I had were the number of stars in the universe. Okay. Or the pale blue dot. Yes. The Carl Sagan. By, well, the two two segments of speech uh, by Carl Sagan and the commentary on the photograph from the outer reaches of the solar system back to taking a picture um, yeah. of Earth. So it's pale blue dot because it appears in the picture as a pale pale blue dot fraction of a pixel suspended in a sunbeam um, on the on the lens of the camera that took the picture. And it just uh, puts into context the vastness of not only our solar system, but the entire universe um, and the sort of triviality of our pursuits uh, for want of a better phrase. But yeah, it's, we'll watch it every now well, There's various YouTube videos you can watch that sort of put together different speeches Carl made um, about yeah. the photograph and just goes through various images of the photograph and other astronomical photos. And yeah, it's really uh, sort of no, it's sobering. Um, sort of, yeah, I like it's probably not a good word for this, but yeah, just a good point of reflection, I think, because there's the photo itself, and then also, if you, I think, tied to it is the, the vastness of the universe and the number of stars, I means beyond really our comprehension on how big the universe is and how varied and how vast it is that you can't, I certainly can't. I mean, there's just there's numbers out there, mm-hmm. but I really can't begin to fathom how big that actually is. And no matter how many YouTube videos <laughs> I watch showing the compar- comparisons of the sun yes. to the other suns, and then of those suns yep. to galaxies and beyond, it, it just I, I can't imagine it. And yeah, that's that's my number one. Pale Carl Sagan's pale blue commentary on the photograph, pale blue dot, and the vastness of the yeah. universe. My uh, so, yes, Dan. Yeah, my my number, number one. one. So, for as long as I can remember, I've always been fascinated by time. Uh, I think I partially blame my dad because he we watched Star Trek and he said I had to invent a faster light machine. Shit, I could go. Back to the future. No, 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 no. Going faster than light. I had to go faster. I go so fast, and I was like, it doesn't work. So I became obsessed with time and to understand time and distance and light and everything. So my number one is the one object in the universe that sums up the impossible contradictions that exist, and that is the black hole. There is not an object in this universe I find more fascinating. I don't think. Half of myself, maybe. Um, But it's just beyond any comprehension. So a black hole is the result of a star eight plus solar masses of our own, so any star that's eight times bigger than our our own or bigger and it's when it dies and it goes what's called supernova so it explodes and the remnants collapses back in on itself under the sheer weight of the gravitational forces at play and it it creates a star because that's what a black hole is at the end of the day and this star can be anywhere from the size of a city or it can be as large as 40% of our solar system so as far out as it's Saturn, depending on the size and scale of the star in play at the time. And 
is an object of immense gravitational power. That, as you guys have already said, light cannot escape. Uh, uh, Stephen Hawking has a famous theory about information falling into a black hole where the information can be destroyed, whether it's possible to destroy information in the first place. And it, it's an object which defies understanding. And and it's the product, it's a product, is, as, as is so many things of the 20th century when it comes to physics, it was the product of Albert Einstein's seminal 1915 uh, theory of general relativity, where he talked about how space and time and gravity are so related. And I've always said that if I, you know, people say, when you die, what's going to happen? I've always said what I'd want would be, even just before I die, just to be blasted off into a black hole. Because as you approach, uh, as you cross the event horizon, uh, which is at the point when you can no longer escape, and as as you approach that time, you appear to be moving slower because you are traveling faster. So you are traveling fast, but everyone watching you slows down. And there's an opportunity there where you would exist forever because you would appear to stand still in time. So it's just an extraordinary egotistical foray into one's... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> one's own ambitions to live forever and it's just as neil says last year we we got a photograph of one and we've seen it you know it's it, it's it's a photo that's produced from quantities of data which is beyond anything that we could ever imagine having to <laughs> compile and to work through so the people that did it are extraordinary and it, it just nobody knows what's at the center we know that there is an object because there has to be something that creates that gravitational pull but we don't know what happens when you cross the event horizon as you approach the singularity, as the center is called. We don't know whether you stop, whether you hit an object. I mean, you could be torn apart by the gravitational forces in the first place, which is one of the issues. But whether there's some people think that it possi- black holes are possibly behave like Einstein Rosenberg bridges, which are basically wormholes. Do you hit the center and then pass through the other side? We we don't know, and I just I just love the fact that it is just a culmination of my love for for time, for time and for the universe, and it's you know it it it's, people behave as if it's something truly evil and terrifying, but it's just it's just one of nature's great wonders that is beyond our understanding. Does every kind does every star become a black hole? Does no. every star no? So our sun, so our solar system is not going to be solar. The center of the center of the Milky Way's got a, got a supermassive black hole, but black holes don't black holes don't behave like people. Beha- people think it's like when they turned on the, the the hadron collider at CERN, and they were like, oh, it'll create micro black holes that'll suck the world. Like, don't be stupid. You know, scientifically speaking, it's a possibility. But if we were to consider every possibility that exists, then we'd never do anything. Um, no, black holes are. They're just they're just one lonely wandering. They'll be the last thing that exists when the when the universe ends, and eventually, when they have nothing else to eat, so to speak, they evaporate and they just disappear. So, you know, they're not eternal. When the universe ends, when's the predict? When's the prediction for the universe to end? Sorry, what's the prediction for the universe ending? Well, the sun the sun's got another five to six billion years. Okay. So it'll be way after that. <laughs> Pot- potentially another what, 13, 15 billion years before we before we run out of stuff. Everything gets so oh, far away that nothing really works. So yeah, so yeah, that's uh, my that's much, my top ten. Yeah, thank you very much, Dan. I think sure everybody learns something there. 
And now we move on to our legendary crypto corner. Crypto and zoological. No, crypto, zoological and conspiracy corner. This one's a special one. I'm excited for this. It does memory have water? Does water have memory? <laughs> Take two. <laughs> now we're going to move on to our legendary cryptozoology and conspiracy corner with uh, Dan taking us away on Does Water Have Memory? Very excited for this. Dan, go for it. Thanks for that, Neil. I think. Yeah, so a really nice, short, simple one today because it's so utterly and totally ridiculous that I couldn't resist it. This, If I'm honest, the background for this comes from, as I'm sure some of our listeners will be aware if they have kids or if they're just Disney fans, in Disney's recent Frozen 2, there's a there's an undertone, there's a theme of the film where apparently water has the capacity to maintain memory. And Olaf the snowman asserts that water has passed through up to seven animals and people before the point when you consume it. So it must have acquired some type of memory through the processes and its experiences of passing through and people and things. So that, that annoyed me intensely. So I think that's what's inspired me for this. Um, so the background for, for, for water having memory goes back to 1988. So it's, it's not particularly an old one. And it was pioneered, I suppose, by a French scientist called Jacques Benveniste. And uh, he. Scientist is a loose term. Well, he, he worked for quite a respectable French institute, and his, in- his intention was to, through the scientific method, prove a theory or disprove a theory that was touted by a group of people, and I'll get onto those people later. But in 1988, he, he publishes findings in the Nature Journal, so a well-known journal. And so what he did was he diluted antibodies in water, and he did this repeatedly and repeatedly up until the point where, under standard investigation, no antibodies appeared to be present in the water. And he introduced this water to the human uh, white blood cells, the Basophils, and the Basophils responded. They reacted to the water as if there was something present. So his conclusion was that because the the antibodies had reacted, the human white blood cells had reacted to the anti the water, even though there were no antibodies present. Then it must show that water has the capacity to maintain and reserve some type of memory of what it previously contained. So after having published this, several teams had had a go at replicating these results, including uh, Jacques' own team, the United States Department of Defense, BBC's Horizon Program, and uh, and other other organisations as well, and none of them could replicate the results. Now, as as it's understood, his his work has been discredited, uh, as you'd expect. And the results have been considered spurious at best. However, the group which he was trying to test their theory when he first set out on this using the scientific method was the the field of homeopathy. Now, 
for those of the, for those of you who may not know what homeopathy is, homeopathy is a theory cr- created in 1796 by the German physician Samuel Heimann. He believed that a substance that causes symptoms of a disease in healthy people would cure similar symptoms in sick pe- in sick people. This doctrine is called similia similibus curatus, or like cures like. Homeopathic preparations are termed remedies and are used are made using homeopathic dilution. In this process, the selected substance is repeatedly diluted until the final product is chemically indistinguishable from the diluent. Often not even a single molecule of the original substance can be expected to remain in the product. So for them, it's a very similar process as to what... Uh, Benvenist did it's a process of diluting and diluting and diluting and diluting up to the point where the product no longer the, the substance is no longer pre- no longer present however they believe that through the process as they tend to hit and shake the product as they're diluting it they claim that the diluent remains the original substance after it is removed so it leaves an imprint it leaves memory so, the work of a French scientist in his efforts to justify the theory of a German physician, some a hundred and almost two hundred years between them, uh, somehow made its way into mainstream media and snuck into a Disney movie, which, which you know, for me, I took particular umbrage with. But I suppose I can get onto that in a bit. But first, I, I, I'll throw it out to you guys. Firstly. Have either of you seen Frozen 2? And also... No. Negative. Disappointing. So, does this discourage you from watching it in the future, then? No. No. Oh, come on! (laughs) I don't don't really... I don't tend to take the Disney films as fact. What? What do you mean? You don't don't believe in in, in talking furniture and... Well, I'm actually looking... I'm actually looking at scientists did show there's a publication, well we can call it a publication, an article on an unknown science literature but, website. Uh, but the groundbreaking discovery of the millennium, a German scientist is believed to have found that water has memory. Yeah, I think so it's frozen too saying that explicitly the homeopathy is like a The premise the premise is that I don't want to spoil it for too many people. The premise is is our, our heroes from Frozen 1 have to go off and basically bring nature back into balance by subduing four primal spirits, fire, earth, water, and wind. But throughout that, there's this repeated reference to... Elsa using her frozen powers to free something and the water in the air or the water spirit creates a memory so shows them a memory that has been that has been preserved in the water yeah and and, and Olaf the snowman spates the theory that water has memory and that water can maintain memory and can preserve but what else yeah I'm, sorry it's not really it's not really lending any credence to homeopathy though the fact that went to the hassle of creating like a separate entity that gives water memory. Uh, I've never seen it so it lacks context for me but based on your description I don't 
I, I don't see this as there's there's a there's a scene where she basically takes the water droplets out of the air and out of the surfaces to recreate the memory of what actually happened in an event. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's completely separate from homeopathies. I disagree because they're claiming that that water somehow is a memory of something being in it. Yeah, I know at that base level, but I mean, I don't I don't think they're using it as some sort of I, I don't I don't think that was their oh. aim at all. If they'd been heard of it, homeopathy, let alone <laughs> believe it. In the in the universe of Disney, do they have homeopathy? <laughs> I mean. I studied fluid dynamics in the first year of uni, and this didn't come up. Well, obviously, obviously not. <laughs> Although they, apparently the scientists only found out in 2018, so it would have been covered. Oh, I think it's in the new syllabus. I think it's an updated syllabus. I think my issue, no, my issue with it, like, is is well, my issue with the Disney one is different from my issue with the whole thing because my issue with the Disney one is like anything that's presented to children. You have to be careful to make sure that children aren't taking that as base fact, because then you have to go away and sort of explain to the children that that's not real. Where children know that furniture can't talk and children know that animals can't talk, then but this is a very different kind of sort of explanation. And I think because you could, if you were to go away from it and you were to research it, and you were to discover that actually there are people who think that water does have memory in some way. Not necessarily exactly the same way. I think it, it then, you know, it, it's all about truth, isn't it? There's, there's too much nonsense going around. And we talk about plenty of nonsense here all the time. I mean, yeah, but go back to. Yeah, it's false. But uh, no, well, homeopathy is clearly nonsense. Absolutely. But going back to the. Going back to the. Our previous ones, what if you watched a film in which it portrayed the world as being flat and they went over the side of the world, which I'm sure cartoons in the past. Must have shown, like, it's easy enough to dis like to say that's not true. But yeah, there's people out there if they were to research yeah. it, saying it is yeah. flat. I don't. I wouldn't say that's damaging. I don't. I don't know. It's. it's, but it's having, having having drawn that comparison, I would. I instinctively think that purporting the word does have memory is more damaging. But I don't know why. Like, I, on the face of it, I, I think it's fine. But yeah, it does sit a little bit uneasily with me. I think it's like it's 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 not so much discussed. Like I think it all depends on the level of engagement with it as well. Because there are there are people because in, in theory homeopathy is harmless. Like there's no harm in it. The only harm in it is is the prospect of giving hard earned money over to a pseudo science, a pseudo medicinal science, where you could no, there is harm in it. Of course, there's harm because people might be forgoing at like real. Medical treatment, yeah, absolutely. And instead, instead taking homeopathic remedies. So there, I think there is a real harm, but more so than a lot of other things we've discussed. Maybe apart from anti-vaxxers, I think they're, they're sort of in the same boat, though, isn't it? It's sort of like an alternative route, yeah. isn't it? So, yeah, no, I agree with that. But I suppose it, you know, when you talk about, I mean, between anti-vaxxers and homeopathy, it's it's that it's that complicated realm of of seeking med- medical support and care and treatment. I, I dragged homeopathy into it because I looked at it and I was like, on the face of this, this is a very small thing and I could have probably talked about it in two minutes. But I decided to drag in some other people just to just to, just to stir the pot. Um, I've got a story about homeopathy. Let's hear it then. So I'd, I'd heard about it by this point. It was about 
nine, nine or ten years ago, maybe? No, maybe, maybe not as much as that. Between five and eight years ago. We had a... Uh, I'd heard about homeopathy by this point because I'd watched some like Richard Dawkins sort of stuff. I'd listened to Tim mention. <laughs> yes, he did. And so on. Yeah, so I'd, I'd been aware of it and I watched a, like a couple of shows on it. Not on it, but I had that as part of the as part of it. So it kind of explained it. Uh, but we're in a we're in a pub on a works night out, and this is one of the only two times we've been chucked out of a pub. But we were speaking to one of the guys, one of the analysts, and he says, oh, "I've got." He said, he said, we're, we're having a debate saying what, what time we're going to call a night guys because we're, we've got a conference tomorrow and he says oh don't worry about that I've got you covered I was like well, what do you mean he says oh, I've got anti-hangover tablets I was like no what's this because like, I haven't drunk in the past I'd uh, researched hangover <laughs> remedies myself and thinking oh he's got some vitamin B complex pills here or something or a glass of water Something, something like that, and he pulls out these this little sort of it's not a veil, but it's a little just medicine uh, sort of screw cap thing. And I like, what's going on here? And the bouncer comes over. At this point, I still don't know what they were. And the bouncer comes over and he says, "What's going on here, guys?" He's like, "What? What's that?" And the analyst has to say, "This is oh, this is uh, it's fine. It's just a medication. It's homeopathic." And I'm like, "What? How have I got myself into this?" <laughs> And so we get there was no no charges pressed no no charges pressed um, but we did get escorted out and it it was able to keep his his hangover remedy uh, but that was an analyst someone whose job you think it would be to sort of consider facts and come to conclusions but he had homeopathic remedies on him. See, it, I mean, I know people who have taken it, and for what the reasons they've taken it, it's not been anything. I want to say anything detrimental, you know. Like you say, a hangover pill is one thing compared to potentially taking something that is, oh, take this and it'll cure your cancer, or to give the, give this to someone, it'll cure their dementia, that kind of thing. You know, there's... I, yeah. I mean, he was undoubtedly over the line on this. In, 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 another, in one of the other conferences, uh, he'd mentioned he'd levitated someone. <laughs> That's for another day. <laughs> I, I I might actually be taking homeopathic um, pills at the moment. Oh my! That would actually be surprised in the slightest. No, but what happened was I signed up for this free sample pack online for these. Uh, it's like mental health. It's either cognitive. It's either Scientology. It's either Scientology or homeopathy. It's uh, it's homeo. No, it's it's uh, called Cogniora, Cog- Cogniora, uh, and they give you like mental boosting things and they give you like a free sample of five and I was like oh it's free forgot to cancel it 60 pounds down the pan later I've got a big box full of them for two months worth and, and do they but work yeah, these are, uh, I always no but I'm looking for medication I always go with the one that's offering free samples <laughs> well I, I just I just, I just I wasn't medication a, I just did an advert and I said oh it's, it's free not a hello it's still a Hello Fresh box, <laughs> but it's just like Hello Fresh. It's mainly it's mainly just like these uh, Chinese herbal medicines, like uh, not medicines, uh, like uh, gen- ginseng and all seahorse I mean, and rhino and elephant and tiger claws. I'm a, and <laughs> I'm a I'm a sucker for an advert. Telling They're me. nootropics. Nootropics, yes, nootropics. Is that homeopathy? Uh, as far as I understand, they're not. No. Okay, I'm safe. 
Doesn't make you any less of a mug. Uh, well, <laughs> doesn't, doesn't mean that have any efficacy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I've, I've seen Limitless. Anything is possible here. Uh, yeah, I've not noticed the best improvement, but... I did look into these, actually, uh, before. And, yeah, I mean, it's, I've not got too much information on them, so just, I won't... Oh, Let's to avoid it. For judgment on yeah, well, well covered. Uh, we diverged there. <laughs> Divulged. Diverged. Diverged. Uh, yeah, so everybody, thanks for listening. That is Can I Interject? Uh, you can reach us at caniinterject at gmail.com. There you go. Uh, <laughs> where can you reach us, Dan? <laughs> it's, it's like... Stri- We've not got a website. It's like, exactly, it's like strictly at the end. It's like, where can you get us from? Uh, you, you can get us at can I interject podcast at gmail.com or find us on or yeah or you can find us on our twitter page can I interject or at interject underscore I we do try and answer everything we will get through them so thanks for listening everybody (laughs) until next time (laughs) that's a goodbye that's a goodbye (laughs) that's a goodbye from Gregor goodbye And goodbye from them. Goodbye, everyone.